right, Hurley Burleyites, it's time for the podcast. I want to extend a warm welcome to you if you're a new listener, and welcome back if you're a grizzled veteran of the Hurley Burley. By grizzled veteran, I mean you exhibit one or more of the following traits. When mixing a cocktail, you either agree or strongly agree that it's rum and coke. Remember, I'm a pollster, so this is the kind of precise methodology I prefer. Two, you currently have more than three bags of Hawkins cheesies in your larder. Yes, I said larder, just like I'm living in 1943. Number three, you are almost completely desensitized to the creative use of goddamn profanity in your political content choices. If you mark down a three on your scorecard, you are not only a hurly burlyite, you may end up as the guest host of this show. We have another two part podcast today. Part one is the noted Canadian economist. Don Drummond. Mr. Drummond spent almost 23 years in progressively more senior positions in the Federal Department of Finance, culminating in Associate Deputy Minister. Paul Martin called him one of the most principled and imaginative public servants with whom I have ever worked. And having worked closely with Don, I can attest to that personally. And subsequent to his time in government, he was Chief Economist for the TD Bank and is now Adjunct Professor at the School of Policy Studies at Queen's University. Mr. Drummond is well outside the consensus on pandemic stimulus spending, and we're going to talk about that. Part two of the pod is our ever-loving political panel with Scott Reed and Jenny Byrne. We'll pick up on my conversation with Don Drummond. We'll get into the goings-on at both the Liberal and the NDP conventions. April 19th is Black Box Budget Day. There's been almost no signaling about what it's going to contain. We'll talk about that. Is the worm finally turning on incumbent premiers during COVID? The declining numbers for Kenny, Ford, Moe, Pallister, even Legault would tell you that. And finally, we'll each throw out our hey yous for the week. Don Drummond, thanks for coming on the Hurley Burley. It's really great to uh, to have you on. Thank I have you, such Dave. respect for you. Thanks for doing it. Um, hey, how are you? I haven't seen I'm you in a long well. time. We've been through a hell of a year. How are you doing? Where are you holed up right now? I'm in Ottawa. Um, I find it very interesting because 2020, I would say, was ties the busiest year I've had in, in my life. Uh, the first being 1995, and you were there, and you know I've been <laughs> kind of busy on the fiscal front. And, and, and then I, I have a habit of being wherever crises land. And then, of course, I was in a big bank when the financial crises landed in 2008. So those two years kind of stood out. I thought those would be kind of be the pinnacle of the, of the pressure. But it turns out that I'm either drawn to crises or crises are drawn to me because uh, 2020 just kind of exploded. And then helping various organizations of the government of Canada design the policies so very quickly uh, in, in the spring. And, of course, who, who knew that in the world of academics that um, not only did nothing miss a beat as we went from in-person to, to virtual, but things basically just exploded. So 2021 seems to be kind of, kind of starting off the same way as 2020. Uh, very interesting, but uh, boy, you know, the, the one thing I think we need to permanently change our mindset is we can no longer stand back and be surprised when shocks happen. They, they, they come at least every 10 years. And, and now the inventory of the sources of them, you know, they used to be garden variety economic cycles and we kind of knew how to deal with them. Then we got a financial crisis. Now we got a health crisis and we know natural disasters are coming given the changes in the environment. So the, we really got to change our mindset and kind of built in plans uh, to accommodate them. 
Has anything surprised you, Don, about how Canadian governments have handled the pandemic? Well, unfortunately, no. And I guess the first thing that wasn't surprising, but it seems to be a, a characteristic of governments, is the total lack of preparation. Even though we did kind of get a mini trial run with uh, SARS in 2003 and H1N1 in 2009, but just, I guess it brings home again, governments really can't run programs. I mean, we, we laughed, I guess, cried maybe when we read that the United States, that the firm that was given the contracts to check the ventilators never bothered to check the batteries. And when they actually needed them, they found very few of them would actually run. Uh, but then we found out in Canada that the masks were all there, but nobody ever checked the expiry dates. <laughs> kind of come on, that is so basic. Um, we have, of course, ran ten years where provincial healthcare spending has not increased relative to GDP. Very, very few people know that they keep thinking healthcare costs are running away, but they didn't from 2011 until the beginning of 2020. But of course, they starved the capacity. Uh, they cut uh, investment and, and buildings and machinery. And of course, we didn't have the capacity to deal with it. So again, it comes back to that whenever we get a shock and we get them quite regularly, we're not prepared and we, we seem to be surprised by them. I would say, if anything, the government of Canada surprised me on the household side with the speed and the size with which they reacted. And I must say, hats off to the Canada Revenue Agency. If you had told me beforehand that they could process 11 million applications for anything within a matter of weeks, I wouldn't have believed it. At a time when everybody was being sent home. So they did almost all of that from their home offices. And smart on the government when they realized that the antiquated employment insurance system would just blow up in everybody's face and couldn't possibly handle that. So they made a very wise decision Canada Revenue Agency is very good. And, and of course, in five or 10 years, it won't look as good because it's going to be very obvious that not all the due diligence was right. But whoever does that kind of post-event audit needs to keep in mind, it looked like the economy and households finances were going to totally crack and something had to be done very quickly. And you can't process 11 mental files if you've got to do a lot of diligence and make sure people prove everything. You've got to act very quickly. And they did. Uh, disappointingly slow and acting on the business side. Uh, this is more your world than my world. I would make a casual observation that perhaps one reason in that cabinet at that time, only one person had any business experience and that person's not even there anymore. And so I don't think that they really grasp. I mean, you look at the initial wage subsidy program was a 10% subsidy. <laughs> you kind of think, okay, these businesses have had their revenues completely disappear and you actually think a 10% wage subsidy is going to make a difference and they're going to bring back somebody but again to their credit they got it of course they got screamed at them that <laughs> that doesn't work but you know the rent subsidy program where the poor renter was totally beholden on the landlord that that had some flaws and, and then just the structural uh to initially give the business loan program entirely to BDC and EDC, where to take the case of BDC, that was 20 times the volume of loans that they've ever done before. How in the world could anybody have sought, sat there and thought that they could handle that? But again, all credit to the management of BDC. They were very smart. They realized they couldn't run it and they brought in the big banks to run it for them. So, you know, so there was, 
very fast action, very large action. Some big mistakes were made. And of course, the biggest mistakes were leading up to it, totally unprepared for it, even though he kind of had a thought that something like this would happen. Very interesting. We should do this again in 20 years to see if this time the lessons get registered and, and we hate changes. Do we actually hire somebody to check the dates of the thing? Will somebody check that the batteries work? So I want to get into, uh, I want to get into budgets and financial decisions, but let me clear something up with you first. You worked in the Department of Finance under Paul Martin and you were retained by Dalton McGinty to do a review of Ontario spending. So you're a partisan liberal, right? Well, you know, I think one of the most frustrating things as a civil servant is you do get branded, and, and, and it, it really it makes me angry, but also makes me sad. But the irony in my case is I've got branded both ways. So I think the world of Michael Wilson and I thought the world of Don Mazankowski, man, I learned so much from those people and I thought they were such tremendous people. And when the liberals came in, I kept getting these invitations from the conservative party to keep coming to all their events. <laughs> and I kept having okay. to, I'm actually not a member of the conservative party. I'm not a member of any party. I've never done anything politically and given my position, I'm not. And they said, but, you're really good friends with Michael Wilson and Don Mazankowski. Of course, you're a member of the Conservative Party. And I said, well, well, no, I'm not. I, A, I served them because that's my job as a civil servant. And I served them to the best of my ability. But B, I won't make no secret of it. I worship those two guys. I thought they were just the greatest guys ever. And I learned so much from them. But uh, not that way. And then the irony of having been branded a conservative then when the conservatives actually did come into power, I somehow got branded I was a liberal. And why did I get branded as a liberal? It's because I served to the best of my ability, Paul Martin and Dalton McGinty, who I also thought were the greatest people ever, and I would do everything I could for them. But I don't think I've ever done anything in my policy advice or certainly done anything in my personal advice that tipped me one way or the other. NDP, uh, Green Party, I, I, I spoke at the annual convention of the Green Party. Uh, I've done things with the NDP. But I, I think a lot of civil servants are there. I, I, I'm always, you know, Jean Chrétien was so full of wisdom. And I loved his story because when he came into power, everyone's expecting him to fire all the deputy ministers. And he said to me, no, 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 I, I don't do that. I, don't, I, I think that they serve the crown. I, I don't think they're that way. And he said, I've only once known the political allegiance of a civil servant. And that was the then deputy minister of finance. And he said, the only reason I knew is because the morning after the Clark Trudeau debate, we came into the office and the deputy minister said, well, Clark clearly won that. And I said, you've got to be crazy. You've got to be a diet in the world biased conservative to think that. And the deputy minister said, well, I am. And my family is. I've always been. And he said, that's the only time I've known the political influence. It didn't bother me in the least bit. But guess who the first person the conservatives fired when the Joe Clark government came in? This deputy minister, who was a conservative. <laughs> he said, that's what you get when you get it. I think the civil services do the best to serve whoever. And, and, and if for some reason they really can't do that, I think they tend to they quit. <laughs> but anyhow, I, I've got branded that way. And uh, but if you look back on my record, I, I was there all those conservative years and with a lot of big policy changes, the free trade agreement, the introduction of the GST, uh, all done under conservative governments. All right. Th thanks for clearing that. Thanks for clearing that up, because I think it's important.
Um, so let's get to the federal budget that's coming next week. Uh, are you surprised at how little we know about it at this point? Yeah, I am. So it's, it's been an art of budget making for an awful long time that they tend to get revealed. And, and in fact, and it was uh, something that I introduced or at least convinced the government to introduce the, the false statement. They, they didn't used to be the feature of the federal budgets, but I thought they were a necessary vehicle because you can't talk to people. At least people won't listen in the budget. You do the budget and you try to talk to people and explain your story, but all they're paying attention is the CTV or the global or the CBC highlights of the measures. It's, it's not a format for a dialogue and to create a consultation and a discussion. So I always thought, let's do a false statement. There's no measures in it. You can just lay out your vision and you can be quite leading. You can be suggestive and you can test the reaction. And if the reaction is bad, it's not like the government's going to fall on emotions of confidence. It's, it's just out there. And But they didn't really do that in the false statement. They, they presented the problem. They did the extrapolation out for quite a few years and showed a pretty ugly fiscal situation, but didn't really tip their hat as whether they intended to do anything about it. The big wild card, and it's an interesting one, I don't think any of us, well, you would have, but the rest of us probably didn't pay a lot of attention to ministerial mandate letters. But the intrigue is the prime minister stuck in an introduction of a fiscal anchor into the current minister of finance's mandate letter. Now, that could be defined in many different ways, but to, to me, that's going to be one of the most, well, that will be the first thing I'll look at the budget. It may be the last thing anybody else will look at because it's probably going to be way out there in the future, but I'm really intrigued. Are they going to pick some kind of fiscal anchor? And coming back to Ontario, <laughs> theirs is really a joke line. It basically said, however high the debt to GDP ratio gets, we will make sure it goes no higher than that. <laughs> and I go like, wasn't <laughs> yeah. that long ago your debt to GDP ratio was 27%. That was only just prior to the financial crises. And now you think it's going to go to 56% and your anchor is, well, they'll try to not make it go any higher than the 56. I go, <laughs> just <laughs> it's doubled and you're going to lock it in at that. So I hope the federal government doesn't do that, but they may well. I mean, their projections show that their net debt to be ratio, which was about 30% before the pandemic, has risen to above 50%. And I wouldn't be surprised if their projection just show that it's going to stay there forever. And of course, if you project it's going to stay there forever, that means all the risks are on the upside and it could go up even more. So, so Don, this, this interests me because I've, I've had a number of economists on this show <clears throat> Um, almost all of whom have been relatively unconcerned about the federal government's fiscal position um, and thought that it was quite sustainable. And in fact, most of them have been arguing for more spending in various areas, more investment in various areas and spending in various areas. Um, I know you don't believe that. I know that Scott Clark and Pete DeVries have written that the government should raise the GST to pay for the current consumption. Um, that's going on. I know that David Dodge has put forward um, some sort of fiscal anchor and expressed concern about where the fiscal situation is going. What do you think it is about um, the veterans of the Department of Finance having somewhat more skeptical view of our ability to afford all this than what I would say is the consensus of economists out there? 
Well, you make me think of a comment our Minister of Finance made last fall. She said something to the effect that there's nothing worse than old generals fighting old wars. <laughs> and you, you just mentioned all the generals right there in one sentence. I mean, everybody, right. we were the senior management of finance in 1995. That was the war. But we don't. In fact, I would say it was the opposite. None of us want to fight that war again. <laughs> That's what we're trying to avoid. You know, there... It's a natural thing in human life. We see that in so many things. There's a tendency when something appears to be unfolding differently in the past, we think it will always remain different. And we know from our own life, 99% of the time, that's not the case. Things will change for a while, but it tends to come back. Uh, interest rates will rise at some point. And, and in fact, I have a twist on that. Most other people just try to forecast and guess when interest rates arise. I think they absolutely need to rise. Um, I don't think I warrant any sympathy for anybody, but I have been a fortunate position of, of having a retirement savings plan. And I just renewed two GICs in that plan at 0.5 and 0.7% rate of interest. I'm not even remotely covering the rate of inflation. There's no incentive right now to save. It's hammering savers and it's encouraging dissaving. Uh, we have a generation now that has lived their whole household uh, experience at mortgage rates under 3%. And they're maxed out. Everybody's maxed out. Uh, corporations are awash in debt. Governments are awash in debt. Households are awash in debt. That is a very dangerous situation which has not fallen apart in the moment, but it creates vulnerabilities. The other aspect of this that nobody thinks about is the intergenerational fairness part. We are passing off a massive amount of debt to the next generation. Like one of the most immediate things is the governments of all stripes in all countries in the world have responded enormously fiscally to the pandemic and quite rightly so, but who should pay for that? The benefits of it, if we could put it that way, are being enjoyed, uh, are, are being experienced by our generation, the current generation, it's for us. It's not going to have a big effect on the generations down the road. Should we take that and punt it down the road? I would say no. We are already bequeathing. That's Clark and DeVries' point. That's Clark and DeVries' point. Yeah. A huge cost to the next generation of the environment. And it's going to take a lot of their resources to... I was going to say clean up our mess, but it may, that may be too ambitious. And maybe just adapting to our mess and coping with our mess is probably too big a, a problem we've handed off to them. And we can't be saddling them with all that debt and a really high tax burden at the same time. I think we really need to worry about that. So I, I think we need in the next decade or so to have paid for the extraordinary costs that were associated with the pandemic rather than punting them down the road to somebody else. And I think we shouldn't be handing them a debt burden much over 30% of a gross domestic product. And I remember too, if they follow through on it, this generation is gonna be paying a carbon tax of $170 a ton. That's gonna have a big economic impact that you don't wanna be saddling them with an awful lot of things while they are presiding over the excellent, uh, absolutely the right thing, but the transition to net zero is going to strain everything to the limits and they need some capacity to deal with that. You know, I, you know, we talk about their 1990s when working together. I, I, I so often think about the reform of the Canada pension plan 
And I think it's a lesson, while it was a good thing, it had a very bad side that we should be cognizant of. The solution to the pending bankruptcy of the Canada Pension Plan was to make young people pay premium rates that far exceed the value of the plan. They are subsidizing the previous generation of workers. It's not the fault of the previous generations. They didn't cheat. They paid what governments told them to pay, but governments didn't tell them to pay enough. But the solution wasn't to address the problem by the older people who got a net benefit. The solution was to saddle for their entire working life young people with paying higher premiums than they're ever going to get out of the plan. But you can't keep doing that with everything. At least I hope you can't keep doing that with everything. And I don't see that intergenerational side being brought in very much. And, you know, you're, you're, you're kind of in the same age bracket as me. We, 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 we always get that joke. We would love to tell our grandchildren and others how tough things we were young compared to theirs. Uh, my school was at the end of my street. We walked to school. We played uh, without our parents having a clue where we were. Uh, we went to university virtually free. And we almost all got jobs before we wrote our final exams. And, and they were indeterminate jobs with a full suite of benefits. And yeah, my generation got stuck with really high mortgage interest rates, but that didn't last very long. You know, I teach in a graduate school and they consider themselves extraordinarily lucky if they come up with contracts and they stringing contract after contract, they got no benefits. And how much more do you want to pass on to them uh, when they're dealing with that? And, and if anything, the shifts in the labor market are going to be faster in the future than they've been in the past. And they, they, they have to have a certain fleet of footness and you can't be tiring uh, some anchor around their you know, fiscal anchor. You want to make sure that anchor doesn't drag them to the bottom. Hey, who remembers Leonard Bones McCoy? Some of you are nodding right now. He was the doctor on the original Star Trek, a show set in the year 2265 created by the visionary Gene Roddenberry. You can tell I'm a big fan. I've got my Star Trek mug here, which Bones was number three. Not quite big enough to get onto the mug, but he's third after these two guys. Amongst all kinds of futuristic equipment, old Bones had this wand he'd wave over patients that would instantly monitor their health and diagnose what was wrong, just wave it over them like this. Well, Gene got it right. Only he was about 240 years too slow with some of that medical stuff. 5G technology, and as a result, digital healthcare, is set to explode in this country. And our presenting sponsor, TELUS, is on the leading edge of all of it with TELUS Health. 5G will make the internet 10 to 100 times faster than it is now, with enormous bandwidth. That's going to expand on and bring us brand new services we can access at home at lightning speed. Think of this. 5G will enable innovative wearable tech that can monitor patients' health factors in real time so that doctors can track, treat, and even diagnose conditions like heart or kidney disease remotely and accurately. Just recently, the first remote surgery took place using 5G-enabled robotics while the patient and the surgeon were nearly 3,200 kilometers apart. With 5G devices, doctors will be able to care for far more patients with fewer limitations. No more having to make unwise trips to the office when you're medically compromised. TELUS electronic medical records will be dramatically expanded, with large image files like MRIs and CT scans transferred much faster. That reduces our wait times. All of this goes beyond simple connectivity. It addresses a deeper social issue. How can we all stay healthier with an improved healthcare system and better access to it?
With 5G, that's a place where TELUS is determined to boldly go. Find out more at telus.com slash 5G. But what kind, of, what kind of anchor is it, Don? So, I mean, the people that are less concerned tell me that there's no risk of real inflation as far as the eye can see, and so therefore interest rates don't have to rise. Interest rates are so low now, it almost doesn't make any sense not to borrow money at these interest rates. And plus, everybody else in the world is doing it. And plus, now we're, we're borrowing from ourselves. We're borrowing from the Bank of Canada. Why didn't, why didn't we think of that in 1995? Why did we have to cut the crow rate? Why couldn't we just borrow some more money from the Bank of Canada? Well, well let's just deal with that interest rate first because I'll come back to that theme of why interest rates need to rise. That Yes, they're not particularly high right now. They need to go up. Uh, I don't say that they need to go high. And if inflation is not a big problem, they shouldn't go high. But... <laughs> I had an interesting experience in the 2000s because I, I wrote a paper on the concept of, I called it a neutral interest rate, and I literally got summoned by the governing council of the Bank of Canada, who, who basically said that they were going to write letters to all the universities that had given me degrees and recommended my degrees be recalled because it was a <laughs> concept in theory, and in practice it was meaningless because the neutral rate will change. Well, fast forward a future years, and, and if you look at the Bank of Canada statements, this concept of a neutral rate is front and center of everything they do. <laughs> to their word, when they first heard about the concept, it does change. When they first started publishing it, they thought the neutral short-term interest rate was around 3.5%, and now they sort of think it's more in the 2 to 3%. But monetary policy should be very simple. It's that basically you set things at neutral and if the economy is performing very well, you just go home, just go to bed, do something else. But we are now in our 13th year of super low interest rates and it's building up problems. It's building up financial instability itself. Yes, you could argue maybe they don't have a choice because they've had to stimulate the economy, but I think we need to be very careful about that. And I think we're in the midst of gearing down to a slower sustained rate of growth. And I have a great deal of fear that both the monetary and the fiscal will balk at that and they'll try to stimulate the economy from the demand side. A very similar situation, talk about old generals and old wars, the exact same thing happened in 1973 to 78 where the economy slowed down and everybody thought it was temporary. And basically it took till 1995 before that slowdown and growth got fully factored into budgets. Whoa, what a slow learning curve. So I'm hoping we're not doing that well, but interest rates do need to rise. And you also look at it, you know, we hit 1995, we were paying 36 cents of every dollar of revenue on interest payments. And you remember what was the one thing every member of parliament came and said when they had a break, spring break, they came back from their ride and they said, all anybody in my constituency says is they're not getting their money's worth. And we go, duh, they're getting 60 <laughs> dollar that they send. And you know, and what really intrigued me because I came up with that concept that I called it the interest bite and then the auditor general started to feature it and then the government of Canada started to feature it. I thought that was a tremendously important political concept but shows why I'm on the economic side, not the political. It never took legs from the political side, but I thought your proposition as a politician is you're gonna say, give me a dollar and I'll give you 64 cents. You're never gonna get reelected. How could you possibly do that? But that 
the success and turning on the deficit never really turned on that. And of course, with interest rates so low, it's lower than that. You mentioned David Dodge's rule. His is try to keep the payments under 10 cents. But still, if you want healthcare and you want education, there's 10 cents that you might as well stick in the fireplace and burn it because that doesn't help you pay inter- that doesn't help you pay for current services. And if and when interest rates go up, that 10 cents was slow. I think you know, part of the problem with economists is they've been searching for a single fiscal anchor and it doesn't need to be that. I would think the ultimate one is the debt GDP ratio, but there needs to be some markers along the road. I think we need- Can I stop you for a sec? Can yeah. I stop you for a sec? Let's just clear one thing up. Even in 1995, you didn't believe that we needed to adhere to a year-in, year-out balanced budget target, did you? You believe in more flexibility than that. You know, it's, it's very interesting because somewhere along the line, thou shalt balance the budget got elevated to the 11th commandment. And I guess it's because it's a simple concept to understand. And of all the fiscal concepts, it's one that people can relate to from their household situation. <laughs> you got $2,000 net income per month. It's pretty hard to get a buy unless you're spending about $2,000 per month. But of course, there's no need to do it. And if you adhere to a debt to GDP ratio of 30%, for example, as long as the economy is growing, you could run deficits. That's perfectly satisfactory. So no, I, I don't think there's anything particular, but I, I do think it's a useful milestone to get the debt burden down. You're actually going to have to run surpluses for a while and you would have to cross through a balanced budget. And I would hope this budget would aim to balance the budget some point around mid-decade. I think you need to be cognizant of the interest payments as a percentage of revenue. But the problem with the David Dodge rule is while interest rates are very low, you could build up a massive amount of debt. And if the rates rise, you're stuck. You're far too late to deal with it. You've gone too far. It's a problem with the guardrails that the Minister of Finance talks about in the labor market. The labor market is a lagging indicator of the economy. By the time you touch those guardrails, you've gone too far. So that's a bit problematic. I think some people have suggested program spending over the GDP. The problem with that is you don't really know the ideal level. But I come back to another point that I want to make that nobody makes. It's not just a matter of how much you, you spend. It's how you spend it. A lot of government spending is not over efficient. And you've got to worry about that. It's like it's not a dollar is a dollar a dollar. Some of it's just junk. You know, you're talking about the review and I did in Ontario. <laughs> Yeah, they got, well, at that time, you had $3.4 billion worth of business that needs to be counted, the spending and revenues. And, and none of it would really work unless breaking a market failure. And I would ask manager after manager, what is your program accomplishing? And they, and they would say, well, we created 500 jobs. And I said, well, if I put in $400 billion in a helicopter and flew over Young Street and threw it out, people would pick it up and they would spend it, and that too would create jobs. So big deal. What are you accomplishing? And of course, their eyes glaze over because they never put the two sides together. They never realized that their spending of $400 million was taxes to $400 million to somebody. So you always have to provide this really test. I accomplishing more with that spending than the damage I'm doing by raising the revenue. And I don't think governments typically do that. And so you've got to be really, really careful of exactly what you're spending on, and particularly the federal government, because they don't have a lot of experience running the programs. They can end up wasting a lot of that money. 
You know, if you look in the last couple of years, one of the things that concerns me is the temptation they're trying to provide to provinces or having the federal government enter certain fields of provincial jurisdiction, but they do it through limited and temporary funding. So here's a lot of money for a couple of years for home care and health care, but it's only going to last a few years. And then the fall update, here's two years of help of long-term care. And I go, well, excuse me, like we're going to have a doubling of the seniors in the next 15 years and you actually think two years of funding is going to make a difference <laughs> like this is a long-term problem that's just going to get bigger and bigger and so that's an example to me it's not just it was a billion dollars let's examine the billion dollars let's examine it against the context and what you might achieve and it looks very bad of any kind of objective analysis so don i just want to take a side a detour here because you prompted me with some a, a memory which is that when I worked with you and we would sit around the CMO table talking about things, there was always the list of things that people wanted to do. And then you always had a list of what you called pressures. And those were things that nobody really wanted to do, but they were going to have to get done at some point. They were sitting out there building up, um, does that still happen? And what are those pressures that we're not even aware of that are going to impact on uh, the government's financial position? Uh, this is this is why old generals fight the old, the old battles because it's exactly uh, we could just write them off from the fall update. The one that bothers me the most, and you'll remember this file that drove us crazy in the 1990s, our old friend, the employment insurance account. But it's the opposite problem. We dealt with a problem that was generating huge surpluses and the government didn't want to give up of all the revenue because it was helping reduce the deficit. It did finally get resolved. I recall we did pre 17 presentations at the ministerial level before that one got, got to a decision. Uh, in the fall update, they did not say anything about employment insurance premium increases going forward. They've frozen the rate for this year and next year there's a piece of legislation that makes sure it has to balance every seven years. If you look at their final projection of revenue, you will see that there's no premium increase there. So they, they've either have a huge premium increase in the sixth and seventh year, or they're breaking the law, which is a pretty harsh thing to be doing in your own statement. So there's about $6 billion of pressures right there. Not sexy stuff whatsoever. It's just simply, billions of dollars to prevent skyrocketing employment insurance. And if you want to get a reasonable economic recovery and you want people to come back into the job market, why in the world would you want that? We're already back to our old friend CPP for the first time since the 1990s. Those premium increases are already. And then there's a whole bunch of pressures that the government has created themselves. They've said they want a national farmer care program. You name it, it could be up to $100 billion. They said they wanted basic income. You know, that's 50 to $100 billion. They want a national child care strategy. They want a national training strategy. Of course, always you have to wonder in the current environment, can you have a national anything? And probably not until you address one of the trickier problems, the Canada Health Transfer. I mean, the Harper administration, bless their hearts, if your goal was to protect the federal fiscal framework, they did a pretty good job. You could argue it wasn't fair, but they capped the Canada health transfer and they capped the Canada's social transfer. They increased the age of entitlement for old age security. When, bizarrely, the liberals aren't wound, which I don't understand. 
but at a time when healthcare spending are soaring and against an environment that status quo health spending will probably increase about five or six percent, the federal government's restricted the growth to normal GDP, which is probably going to be only about three or three and a half percent. So the federal share of health spending is going to be forever declining. It's already declined. It's going to forever decline further. That's a pressure. And I don't think the provinces, I wouldn't blame the provinces. I wouldn't play ball with anything until that. You, know, you saw the, the Council of Federation, they're asking for $28 billion. That's a huge problem. So whatever money you can get, a, get your hands on is probably going to have to deal with those pressures. Uh, and, and of course, we we're wanting to make the net transition to zero. Now, a lot of the heavy lifting can be done by the carbon tax. We'll see how that plays out, but there'll be additional expenditures to accomplish that. So it's hard to deliver on the new spanky, brand new, shiny uh, baubles when you've got so many undergoing things. And you, you look at the, the, the capital side of defense, which we've starved for years and years. You look at the Coast Guard, which we starved, the lack of computers and RCMP. None of this stuff is very interesting politically. I get it. It's the bolts, the nuts and bolts of running the machinery of government, but it does require a fair bit of money. Uh, we almost never allocate it to it. Okay. So the most potentially exciting part of the budget may be the 70 to $100 billion uh, growth fund that the premier said that the minister said would be in this, in this budget um, unspecified what it would be for announced quite a while ago and projections about the economy change, etc. Do you think the government uh, should be spending, uh, putting a 70 to $100 billion into a growth fund right now? And if so, what, 70 to 100 is a big range. Uh, is that the right number? And second of, all, and second of all, what should they be doing with it? Like what, what should you be spending it on? first get into the fine art of semantics it's a very unfortunate choice of words fiscal stimulus because fiscal stimulus rightly or wrongly has become to be understood as one thing and that you're trying to stimulate the economy and you typically stimulate the economy by raising demand in particular you try to get households to spend that is not the issue Household income, bizarrely enough, well, not bizarrely enough, it's because of the massive government assistance. Household income has actually gone right. up over the course of the pandemic. All the CEOs are talking about, we don't know what the heck to do with all the deposits we've got. We're, you know, we're, we're having a hard time finding drawers to stuff the money that people are depositing <laughs> in the banks anymore. And we know, we see it with our eyes. If at this very moment in Ontario, we were physically able to go in the stores, you and I know what would happen. <laughs> the stores would be full. We don't have, for most people, and I, I, I really hasten to add that because this pandemic has had such a sharply differentiated effect across people. And I'm not saying the statement applies to everybody, far from everybody. A lot of people are really hurting very badly, but on bulk, people have got the wherewithal to spend and even when they've been physically constrained, they've still been doing it. They're showing up for the curbside delivery. Uh, you know, the Amazon deliveries are going up and down my street every single day. Some of them are coming to my door, I must say, as, as well. That doesn't seem to be the problem. We do have this unlike, even unlike the financial shock of 2008, this has been an economist term, a supply side shock. It's been a shock to our capacity. 
we've seen immigration plummet. So that's going to lower our labor force. We've seen the labor force participation rate, for particularly for women, plummet. That's going to hurt the supply capacity of the economy. We've seen investment, business investment has collapsed. And we've seen, we've always had a lot of mismatching in the labor demand and supply, and we've seen that exacerbated. Businesses shifting so rapidly, some of them cannot find the skill sets that they're looking, and there's an awful lot of workers whose skill sets will not be in demand once we go forward. So we have a huge problem with the supply capacity. In that fall update, Finance said that they were lowering their long-term growth rate from 1.7 to 1.4% per year. That's not very rapid. That's that kind of shift I was talking about from the 1970s. The Bank of Canada has talked about an even larger downward adjustment. We'll see when they come up shortly with their latest economic outlook, but they're lowering tremendously their estimate of the economy's capacity. So if you're going to do something, you have to do it to the supply side rather than the demand side. And that's a lot harder to do successfully. The demand side, you just throw money at people and they, they will spend a good part of it. That's easy. And that's what governments do, right? I mean, government, is, particularly the federal government, they're very good at writing checks. They're not so good at delivering programs. They're not. We've been trying since 1973 to increase innovation and productivity in the economy without any success. They're not so good at that, but that's what we need. I mean, immigration, if you work at it, and I would say we need to better tailor it to the labor market demands, it'll probably come back as the health situation improves. We probably need to do some kind of assessment for business investment and the CDHOW shadow budget. We recommended a temporary investment tax credit. We definitely need to do something for childcare. One of the many fascinating side effects of this pandemic is we have never heard childcare being discussed as an economic measure before. It has always been a family measure, and to be sexist about it, it's often tagged as been a measure for women. We don't have that conversation anymore. We realize when so many households have two income earners that you have to have good childcare in order for the economy to function. So something will have to be done. I don't think that will be a national childcare program. I just don't think the federations in the state where the provinces are going to play a game with that. And it won't just be Quebec opting out of it, who already have a perfectly reasonable program. It will be all of them opting out until at least the healthcare problem. But we need to deal with that side as well. And of course, six billion of the seventy to hundred, I think, should be allocated to prevent the employment insurance premiums going up. So some of it will be needed, but it'll be needed in a very, very different fashion than we've caught. And they really should stop calling it fiscal stimulus. It's a not stimulus in any way of the conventional sort. Do you consider do you consider childcare to be a current consumption expense or uh, an investment in infrastructure in the future? Well, it, it, it's both. Uh, I think just in, in terms of current consumption, obviously it helps households. It's an investment in the future in the sense that we know it increases the labor force participation rate. Um, we saw what happened to the female labor force participation in Quebec when they went with the original $5 a day plan and then the seven day plan, the, the labor force participation rate went up quite dramatically and that raised the supply capacity of the economy. So so that is an investment, but but it's both. Because I don't think we'll see a national childcare program, you can deal with some. We have kind of a stingy tax deduction for childcare expenses right now, and that could be improved. And the same thing could be said on the pharmaceutical side. We have fairly stingy treatment of medical expense deductions. And if you get very high medical expense deductions, you're kind of capped. 
at the moment, and that could be addressed, and that will go a fair ways at a much, much lower cost. We're talking about a couple of billion instead of a hundred billion of dealing with those problems. But that comes back to, it's not just how much they spend. You gotta be smart, you gotta be strategic. I, and I think we need to get in that concept. If you want all these big expensive programs, they have to be paid for. And they shouldn't be paid for by my grandchildren. <laughs> They're gonna have enough mm-hmm. on their plate to handle with the bad, bad stuff we're handing to them. But why should they pay for a, a national farmer care program? Why should they pay for a basic income? If we're gonna do this stuff, you gotta raise money. And of course, the most effective and efficient tax vehicle we've got for raising money is the GST or in the provincial context, the HST. So since they said they were going to spend 70 to $100 billion, Biden has come out and, and has put $6 trillion of spending to the American Congress. Um, what, what would you think if the government actually put more than $100 billion into that spending, into that investment fund going forward? Well, first of all, like in many things, I don't think we should be blindly following the United States. Uh, They're in an unbelievable fiscal mess with uh, very high spending and a huge structural imbalance. They have relative to Canada fairly low tax, and they seem mightily resistant to change that. They don't have an energy-related tax. They don't have a broad-based sales tax, for example, and they tend to have, not everywhere, but in most places they have... uh, lower personal income taxes than we do, but now they're spending spending. Now it's a little bit apples and oranges because part of their so-called fiscal stimulus package is things that we already have. So for example, it's a more reasonable employment insurance benefit, but we already have that and we augmented that for the CERB. So we've done a lot of the stuff that they're already thinking about. And a lot of, they're, they're sweeping everything. It's the kitchen sink and the, to- the toilets in there and the bathtubs in there as well. And they're all calling that as part of this fiscal stimulus, but it's part of the ordinary government spending that they've neglected for an awful lot of time. But, you know, they are for the moment neglecting their big debt issue and their under taxation effort. And I think that's going to hurt them. And unfortunately, if that hurts them, they're going to hurt us. But I don't want to follow that. I, I think we can do a better job on our own. And uh, again, it's not just a matter of how much we spend. We've, we've got to spend smarter. Uh, I, I don't see as much effort being doing it. Come back to me doing the Ontario Commission. That was really my focus. If you're going to, <laughs> you know, it's funny in the Ontario budget because they did a 10 year projection and they showed that they can kind of restore the fiscal stability. And all they need to do is keep program spending at 2% a year. And I was like, that's easy, nothing to see here, look away. And I go, well, to constrain healthcare spending was restrained at 2% a year, education was spent at 1% a year. These are big declines in real per capita terms. That's very tough. You cannot pull that off unless you increase the effectiveness and the efficiency of that spending. That's the tough trick. And this is going to be the really interesting thing in the drive to net zero because the government's going to be tempted to introduce all kinds of new programs, but will they work? Because the record on that's not been great in the past. And the litmus test for them, like if you give somebody $400 million, it doesn't mean a success just because they spend their $400 million. All you've done is taking $400 million out of somebody's pocket and you put it in somebody else's pocket and you've created a huge administrative and efficiency loss along the way. But we don't tend to look and scrutinize spending that way. 
Uh, last question about the feds before I want to go to Ontario, but last question about the feds. Um, are there revenue options for them? We see, you know, Scott and Pete recommended a GST increase. Biden is going, uh, is reversing Trump's high income and corporate tax cuts. Um, is there some opportunity to raise revenue in, in Canada? Well, I guess I'll start with the way the, you know, like the bank robber said, why do you rent? Why do you rob banks? Because where the money is, the, the big money, of course, is in personal income taxes. All Canadians pay very high marginal income taxes. And, and when I say that, most people immediately think about the wealthy. Uh, the wealthy actually don't pay the highest marginal income taxes. It's people, families particularly have child benefits that pay the highest because those are taxed back. So seniors who, for example, get the guaranteed income supplement because that's taxed back tend to pay highest marginal tax rates. I don't think further on personal income taxes in Canada. Yes, if the United States raises uh, their corporate income tax, it gives us some breathing room, but most states have lower corporate income taxes than Canadian provinces. So we are already quite squeezed and we will continue even if they raise their tax to 28. So I don't think there's any scope. And in fact, I think it'd be better if we further lowered the corporate income tax. So we have the carbon tax and I, and I think it's smart economically and politically to set that aside and, and have that uh, a zero net, whatever proceeds yeah. you give back to people. Um, that, I think, was a key to the success in British Columbia. A very smart move to introduce it that way. It calmed the, the fears about that, and I think we shouldn't tamper with that. So really, by process of elimination, it comes back to GST. But it's a pretty good place to end up by elimination because study after study show it has the least economic damage. It is the most efficient and effective way of raising revenues. People worry about the distribution effects, but you can deal with that through the credit built into the GST. So if we need new revenues, and I would argue we do, that's definitely the way to go. And in a way, for those with a memory, you know, you can get two points by just putting it back where it used to be. It started off at seven. The other thing about it is it admittedly does have a high cost, particularly for small businesses to administer it, but that's a fixed cost. So you might as well bring in a fair bit of revenue. If you're going to put everybody through that cost, you might as well get a substantial amount of revenue. So by lowering it from seven to five, you actually made the tax less efficient. So I would definitely think that's the tax vehicle we should use in Canada. Don, in the, in the 90s, uh, in uh, 99 or 2000, I can't remember, after the budget was balanced, we introduced what we bragged about as the biggest tax cut in Canadian history. Was that a mistake? No, I don't think so. And I, and I think the proof was in there. Canada was in a pretty good fiscal position until we hit the financial crises. And even then, we were in a sufficient enough position to handle the, the financial crises and to respond very strongly and get back to balance. In fact, I wrote a piece for, sorry, not see how, but the Fraser Institute just did a volume of papers on the 1995 budget. And I, I wrote it was, it was basically a solution that lasted for more than a generation. And, and it allowed to create those dividends. You know, it was very interesting that you're talking about the corporate income tax side because one of those tax cuts was moving down the federal corporate income tax, uh, which I never thought the government would accept. It was a very interesting lesson for me as a bureaucrat. Uh, I had 
proposed and thought my head would be cut off reducing it. At that time, the federal corporate income tax was 24%. It was 27, but at a 4% surtax. And I was rather timid in what I was suggesting because I didn't think I would get any political support. And I, I got summoned by the prime minister's advisors, Eddie Goldenberg and Aviva Hozak, offices in the Langevin block. And they said, you know that proposal for reducing the corporate income tax? And I thought they were just gonna give me hard. He says, we want you to lower it more. And I got up from the meeting room and I walked out of the, of the room and I stood out in the hall and they came running out and they saw me standing there looking at the name plaque on the door. And they said, why did you walk out? What are you doing? And I said, I thought I was in the wrong place. I thought I was mistaken in the opposition. I thought I heard the prime minister's office tell me that you wanted to lower the corporate income tax even more. <laughs> That's a lesson I've always thought. And, and I talked to Crutchin about it at the time. And he says, no, I think people get it. I think the proposition is very simple. If uh, you want to have an economy, you've got to have thriving corporations. If you want thriving corporations, you've got to give them a competitive tax play. And so we need to move on that. And, and of course, history bears that out right because the feared for negative response never did come. I, I wouldn't say the people on the streets were breaking up the champagne for it, but it kind of got absorbed and uh, people sort of supported it implicitly. Kretschak could sell right-wing concepts in a way no other politician could because nobody ever thought he was on the side of the big people. Well, you know, the other interesting one, I had the surprise for me one day I was sitting in my office and he called me. He had a tendency to do that. Nobody uh, dialing the numbers for that guy. And he says, call up the 24 Sussex right away. <laughs> so I can run over there as fast as I can. And he says, I, I want you to lower the capital gains inclusion rate. Uh, I, I was as shocked by that as I was by Eddie Goldberg and Aviva Hosex. And I said, you want me to lower that? And I, you know, you're a civil servant. You got to do due diligence. It's funny the numbers you're remembering are like, because we're now going back to the late 1990s. I said that 70% uh, of the benefits go to income earners of 100,000 or more, and 50% of the benefits go to income earners 200,000 or more. You will be criticized for taking a measure that helps the wealthy. And he, he wouldn't have any of it. He says, no, no, no. He says, your numbers are wrong. And I still laugh at him. <laughs> he must have thought I was so naive. So I said, well, my numbers are based on taxation statistics, which is a sample by the Canada Revenue Agency of 40,000 taxpayers, and it has a standard deviation of four percentage points. So I may be off that 50% could be 46. <laughs> He's just laughing at me. He, 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 <laughs> do, and he, you know, he had that great feel. And he says, no, no, no. He says, there's lots of lower income and middle people that own stocks, and that's their hope for changing their situation. Just go and do it. <laughs> and of course I did. <laughs> well, we <they laughs> accepted it. And, uh, you know, that, that, uh, that we now have 50% uh, capital gains inclusion, which is the right thing to do because you don't get to deduct your capital losses. And most of the capital gains you play is inflation and we don't adjust for inflation. So whatever his reasons were, it was a sound policy thing to do. But you know, it was a couple of examples where things that seemingly, as you said, did cater to the wealthier, the right uh, side of it, but I think were, were appropriate. Okay. Let's, let's switch. We're running out of time, and by God, this is going by quickly. I, let's switch, if we can, to Ontario. Uh, 
they released recently released their own budget, which you referred to earlier. I had Peter Weltman on this show a couple of weeks ago, and uh, you know I'll paraphrase him, and he won't like it. But basically, if anything, I think his point of view, without having done a full detailed analysis, his view is if anything goes wrong, Ontario is fucked. Like there's no margin. There's no. Uh, there's there's no there's no margin for error there. Right up against it. Well, I, I would put that quite differently. I would say if everything goes very well, they're in deep trouble. <laughs> <laughs> they, well, as I said before, they provided a projection going out 10 years. Their unfavorable economic scenario features mm. annual GDP growth of 1.8% a year from 2019 to 2029. That is above my base case scenario for Ontario. I think growth in Ontario is likely to be at most one and a half percent and could be less than that. So they put this title unfavorable on a growth scenario. I think is far too optimistic and it shows a terrible fiscal result. <laughs> so that's why I say they're assuming things are going to go absolutely great and they still end up at over a 50% debt GDP ratio. Ontario, if you ever do a graph of their debt to GDP ratio, it makes me think of a stair climber gone very bad. A stair climbers go up and up and up, but eventually they come down and you can get off the thing. Their stair climber just goes up and up and up and up. And <laughs> never even plateaus. Every time there's an economic shock, Ontario's debt to GDP ratio jumps up. And after a long period of strong economic growth, it never comes back down again. So they ratcheted it up from the economic cycle of the 1980s. They ratcheted it again in the 1990s. They ratcheted it again in the financial crises. I mean, their debt GDP was 27%, just as recently as 2007. And now it's over 50%. And they project, even in their most favorable economic scenario, which is wildly optimistic, that it won't drop below 50%. That's a big problem. And it's much more serious at the provincial level because you said everyone in the world is running large debts, but it's a little harder for a province to attract that kind of financing. And they don't have some of the offsets, uh, you know, and shocks are more likely to have a, happen at a provincial level because provincial economies are more specialized than a national economy. So I think they're looking at a very hard problem. And I think they were very deceitful in their budget and I'm very disappointed in the media coverage of the budget because they said, as, as I put it before, there's nothing to see here. We'll solve this problem by keeping spending at 2% a year as though that's not difficult. And nobody in the media called them on it. That is very, very difficult. Uh, that tightness of health and education spending is actually lower spending than I recommended in my 2012 commission. And I thought that was going to be very difficult. Healthcare spending left to its own devices with population and aging growth and all the other pressures will likely increase five or 6%. It would be enormously difficult to preserve any kind of quality of the services at 2% growth. Education spending at 1%. You know, Ontario for a number of years had a declining school-age population, but thanks to people like me, I am the prime example, two grandchildren hitting the school system, the children, grandchildren, the baby boomers are hitting the Ontario schools and the school-age population is going up again. There's a lot of pressures in there and you cannot, without dramatic changes, increase the spending by only 1% a year, which is a big real per capita decline. 
very deceitful to present that as that's not a big deal and bad on the media for not pointing out, hey, wait a minute. They look like they're giving comfort here, but this is built on quicksand. This is a really tough box to get out of. So when I was working with Kathleen Wynne, uh, people criticized um, certainly the last budget for being a big spending uh, for being a big spending budget and being indifferent to the to the deficit situation. But when the Conservatives were campaigning, they didn't promise to end anything. They promised to find six billion dollars in efficiencies. And now that they're in office, they won't significantly cut anything. And I'm not saying this to bash them. It's not my point. My point is that Ontario is so strapped that even conservatives can't find anything to cut um, because we're down to the essentials. There isn't enough money for the Ontario government to meet the demands that's being put on it. Now, if anybody would know how wrong I am, it would be you because you did a detailed look. And so let me ask you this maybe fun question. What is the most important piece of advice you gave McGinty that he did not take? To reform the way they deliver services. That was a hard job, and nobody wants to do the hard job. All they did, and in fact, it makes me laugh even though I'm just thinking about it before I express it. Do not put on a hiring freeze. Do not eliminate bonuses for your senior management. Do not cut salaries of civil servants. All that will do is, is you'll keep the poor employees and all the good people of alternatives will leave and you'll end up with a weaker civil service and a weaker government. Of course, they did exactly what I did. They were running competition after competition where nobody applied for a management job. And one year they had 700 people in the management category asked to be taken out of the management category back into the union because they created this. <laughs> and then here's where the part that makes me laugh. They hired me on a contract to advise them to get how to get out of their mess. And I said, okay, I will do that, but you will allow me one shot at reminding you of the irony because would you please read this paragraph of the Ontario Commission? And they read that paragraph and they said, you did everything I advise you not to do. And I actually, in that paragraph, told you what would happen if you don't take my advice. Everything I said will happen did happen. And now you want me to come in and help you fix it. <laughs> To their credit, they did reverse a lot of the stuff, but governments always do that. And they always, because it's easy, it's a lot easier to do that than to do the hard work of restructuring how you deliver stuff. And they think, and I think wrongly, they think it has a political appeal. You know, I think we learned a lesson from Hudak was bragged about laying off 68,000 civil servants. And I said to anybody, I don't care who wins that election. If they're going to deal with the fiscal problem, there will be 68,000 fewer civil servants. The only of those differences is whether you're going to brag about it and say a lot about it. And you think of Harper's fiscal rationalization after 2011, he never told anybody how he did it. And you can say that was unparliamentary, but kind of got away with it. People don't want to hear about that kind of stuff, but you have to do that. And you have to change the way you deliver programs and you have to just stop doing certain things. You just can't keep squeezing, squeezing, squeezing because if you take 10% out of everybody's budget, the lousy program still ends up with 90% more money than it needs. And the programs that you need 
don't run it well anymore because they're understaffed, they're under-resourced. But it's hard. And, you know, that was why, in a way, it was kind of easy to do program review because you didn't go around the cabinet and say, I'm cutting you, you, and you, but not you, you, and you. Oh, that creates a bad feeling. It says, guess what? <laughs> We're mowing you all down. <laughs> and you don't really have a big comeback when everybody else is being hit in the same way. I always thought from observing the political side of it, it was a lot easier to manage the cabinet and to manage a government in that time of broad restraint than it was when he had money. Because for every dollar that was available, there was a request for a hundred and you had to pick winners and losers. It was a lot easier to make everybody a loser, but, but it's hard. And, you know, before I did the Ontario Commission, they'd had two rounds of trying to do that internally. And the, the suggestions were just pathetic. Um, I, I actually, prior to that, I was familiar with three-inch D-ring binders, but I discovered there's actually four-inch D-ring binders. And there was just proposal after proposal for nonsense stuff that just trimmed the dollar here and the dollar there. Nobody was in the mindset. But if you take healthcare, you know, we need to do health completely differently. If we go back to Tommy Douglas, he had two sides to it. It was health restoration. If something goes wrong, you get in there and you fix it. But he had also, we make efforts to ensure the population's healthy. We've never followed up on that part. And this is, you know, ending up in long-term care. It doesn't seem to dawn upon us the simplest way of making long-term care safer is to have fewer people in it. Nobody thinks about that. But to do that, you have to have a properly functioning home care. And we don't. And, you know, talk about a political winner. I have never seen a poll that people have not answered. They want to live independently as long as they can. Why don't we every once in a while give people what they want? But we don't. <laughs> you're able to be 100% independent and you live in your home. The moment you've got a challenge, bing, you're off to long-term care. And we're so fixated right now with improving the standards of long-term care. Everybody's forgetting that we will need to double the number of long-term care beds in the next 15 years if the same percentage of people at every age end up going to long-term care. That's just simply the 75 plus population in Canada is about, just do the math when they were born, these are the prime baby boomers, there is that. And we can't just keep shipping them off to long-term care. It's high cost, but it's not where they want to be. And you look at every other country except for the United States has a whole range of alternative services. They've got good home care. They've got community living. You know, they've got stratified age communities throughout the United Kingdom. But we're in Canada. We're trained since birth. Thou shalt only compare yourself to the United States. They don't do anything interesting for the seniors. Therefore, we shouldn't. Well, wake up. There's uh, 206 countries in this world. A lot of them are doing more interesting things, but we never tend to look at them. But uh, that, that's going to be a huge fiscal pressure coming our way. <laughs> you know, Ontario's got a plan for, uh, had a plan for 15,000 long-term care beds. And I said, well, you, like, you're not even in the right decimal place. You got a woman out of another. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's a long policy approach. That's not what you should be doing. You know, Denmark passed a law in 1987 making it illegal to build more long-term care beds, and they're down 30%. And they have the most satisfied with quality of life seniors in the world. I don't think that's an accident. If you can't get out of your bathtub in Denmark, you call your community service, and then 24 hours, somebody's bolted a bar on the side of your bath. You can do a heck of a lot of bath and bars and sending people to the kind of care arrangements we do. But it requires a change in the mindset. And it requires, you know, there's probably 500 different policies in Canada 
I think we have objectives for 499. We have no objective on Canadians of health outcomes. We have objectives for inputs like wait times. We don't even know what the status of health is in Canadians. We have a vague idea how they self-assess it, but we have no objective measures of it. How wrong is that? But there's an example where you would have to turn everything on its head and do it very much differently. And you can end up doing it more efficiently and keep some of those cost pressures down. But it's hard work. And you have to disturb vested interests, and that's tough. Super interesting, Don. Super interesting. I have one last question, which is this. Building on all this, we've seen through the pand we've seen through the pandemic that the provincial governments did not have the wherewithal to respond to what was happening. Um, and so the federal government has ended up sending out a lot of money just to help provinces fulfill their obligations in the healthcare and education and other spheres. Given everything that we've been talking about, do we need a realignment of responsibilities and revenue in the Confederation? Do we have a situation where there's a federal government with relatively limited responsibilities, but almost unlimited ability to raise revenue and borrow money versus provinces that have a lot of responsibility and are much more constrained? I agree with everything but that last part. So the big cost pressure, bar none, going forward is going to be healthcare. So I won't go through the math now, but as I said, just to stand alone, costs in healthcare will probably increase 5 or 6% per year. And that's much faster than the revenues are going to increase from the provinces, much faster than their gross domestic product, and much faster than the Canada health transfer. So we do have a big problem. But the debate should come. Should the federal government pay more of that or should the provinces just increase their taxes? The provinces have access to every federal revenue source there is other than customs import duties, which are virtually none. And some of them have access to royalties that the federal government doesn't have. So I think you've got a problem and a messiness where the federal government just keeps paying more and more in areas of provincial jurisdiction. You get into this endless problem again with the house transfer. You get in this problem, it's like a bait and switch. Boy, I've seen that so many times, what they propose on the long-term care. That's what happened in the federal government in the 1960s and 70s. They started all kinds of joint problems programs with the provinces, and then they just cut them and left the provinces hanging. And I said, boy, you talk about not learning lessons from the past. I don't like that kind of scenario. So I, I think the debate should be the provinces could take additional revenues themselves. There could be some kind of tax point transfer. In effect, the federal government, if they were to keep the GST 5%, that's a potential tax point transfer right there. The provinces could move on the HST. Let's face it, Alberta is going to have to introduce some kind of version of the HST going forward. So that could be de facto the tax point transfer, and that would rebalance it and keep things under the provincial jurisdiction. Interesting. Thanks. Don, this has been so interesting. Thank you for sharing your time with us because you're just such a wealth of knowledge and one of the smartest people I've ever worked with. But I can't, I can't let this go without telling people one more thing about you, which is if your impression of Don Drummond having looked at him for the last hour is that he's an honest and upstanding person. Let me tell you a story about Don, which is that Paul Martin and Terry O'Leary and I went golfing with Don Drummond one time. And we're excited to play. And we get out there, and Don, Don shows up in running shoes, not golf shoes. Don has his work shirt on, a collared, buttoned shirt. 
And he looks, his clubs look like they're made of wood. Looks like he's got wooden sticks. So Paul and I, with our fancy tailor-maids, uh, immediately decide that we'll put money on this game with Drummond, right? Who then goes out there in his runners and wooden sticks and shoots us like a 74. So he's a sandbagger, this guy, and you got to watch him because uh, just when he looks like he's uh, got no game, he goes out and shoots a 74. Remember that day, Don? I'll tell you my memory of that. It was called Chairman of the Board. And after you drive, you can pick who you're going to bet on. And on the 10th tee, I made by far my worst tee shot of the day. And I looked like I was in deep. <laughs> Martin said, finally, you're going to bet on me. And I said, no way. I, you're like, <laughs> me, but uh, I, I, I'm still betting. I mean, he was so angry. That is so insulting. He <laughs> double bogeyed it, and that just made him even matter. But it's also, it comes back to how you have to analyze results. So at the end of the round, the three of you said, well, you beat us because you hit the ball so much better. And I said, no. I took 26 putts, and I think the three of you averaged 40 putts. You might want to think about that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but working on your putting is no fun, Don. Working that's on your exactly, putting is no exactly fun. That's exactly my point, David. That's why governments yeah. don't actually restructure their programs, because that's the nuts and bolts. You can do it, but it's not as fun. What's fun is hitting the ball 250 yards down the fairway, but that's not really what counts at the end. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Don, you're the best. Thanks for doing this. Okay, Stay in touch, would you? Okay. I'm going to go on a bit of a tangent here. Call me pedantic. CN is our sponsor, and I want to know what I'm talking about when I do spots like this one for the pod, and so often I do a little bit of reading to catch up on things before I do the ad. But this one is about hopper cars, and I know hopper cars. Coming from Saskatchewan, being involved in transportation policy all my life, I know hopper cars. They are critical to moving grain for farmers. And CN has just bought 2,500 brand new high capacity hopper cars. The railway uses them to ship grain out of Western Canada, which has always been sort of a prime mission. But why hopper? Do they hop around? What does hopping have to do with grain? Well, this I did have to read about. You have to go a long way back to find out, and I mean a really long way. Chaucer, talked about a grain hopper 700 years ago in Canterbury Tales, I've discovered. The hopper was basically a container with a hole in the bottom that channeled grain into the mill. And yes, it moved around. It even jumped a bit as the grain exited, kind of like the receptacle that feeds coffee beans into a grinder, which I suppose is why that's called a bean hopper. Okay, I digress. The reason CN bought all of these new high-tech hopper cars is because CN has been breaking records for shipping Canada's excellent, globally coveted grain out of the prairies for more than a year. The railway did it again in March. It moved just about 3 million metric tons to Canadian markets and to ports for overseas shipments. And that was despite some pretty extreme cold. Grain farmers are constantly improving their technique and technology, and so is CN. Talk about Canadian success. Anyway... I just wanted to put all that into the hopper. All right. It's time for the panel. I was going to say if it's Tuesday, but it isn't Tuesday. It's Wednesday. We're late, to, we're late this week. It's Wednesday. It's the political panel with Jenny Byrne and Scott Reed. How are you, folks? Howdy. 
I'm great. good. How are You're you great. Uh, I'm okay. I had my shot this week. I'm feeling good about having done that. Um, That's awesome. It is awesome. It, you know, it's a, it's an, a, it's an amazing feeling of comfort, especially as you watch this thing rip around through Ontario like crazy right now. So it okay. is nice. It is nice to have it done. And Scott, you did I got not it done in Quebec to Wakefield. No, I did. I got my shot last week because two weeks ago they opened it up in my neighborhood as a hot spot for fifty and over. They dropped it from sixty to fifty. Um, but then Doug Ford announced that it was being dropped in hot spots to eighteen to forty nine. Three of my family members who were eligible went online, applied, punched in their dates of birth, and everything. We're very like you know rule following creatures. And then when we arrived, we were turned away and said, that may be the policy that was articulated by the Premier, but that is not the policy that has been activated by the Premier. So it's a string to nothing, that promise. It's a uh, lever. So your, your, your angry rant on Twitter seems yeah. to have prompted actually some journalism into this issue. And did we actually find out, just tell me if I'm right about this, did we actually find out that the Premier just said that on the spur of the moment in the news conference? Because he thought it would help him get through the news conference? No one was really willing to acknowledge that. I was told that in the tech briefing yesterday, they asked the question and officials squirmed, acknowledged that they had to make some changes rather hastily uh, that were not entirely effective in the aftermath of his um, commitment. That's what bugs me about it. I actually don't think, I know we're going to get into this, but what bugs me about it is I don't think it's a story about, like, and I'm not going, I, I'm not, I swear to God, I'm not going full Karen, okay? Like, I'm not standing on the front lawn of the vaccination clinic with, like, you know, uh, my expensive shoes and, and, and handbag and screaming, like, why can't I go first? Like, what, what, I, what I'm, what bugs me is that, um, I think what you've said is exactly right, David, and it's what frustrates me. It's that I think that under heat, uh, the premier thought, you know what make, will make people like me in this moment yeah. is if I say that in hot spots we're actually opening up to everyone. <laughs> and so I'm going to say that, and now I have said it, and I feel very happy with myself, uh, and he wandered off, and that was it. And like, it was like six days later, and they're like booking appointments and things are happening, and then people are just getting turned away. There are people being turned away in the lineup I was at. In, in well, droves would be an exaggeration, but there were at least five people turned away in, this, in a similar circumstance. And you kind of go, well, like, fuck, man. Like, on something like this, if you make a promise, make sure that you have the infrastructure in place to keep that promise. And now they're saying, well, now we're just talking about mobile mo mobile units. Mobile units. It's like, oh, yeah, well, I'm listening. And I hear, like... The jingle jangle. Oh, it's the guy who's got the knife sharpening truck. I'll go chase him. Oh, wait, now there's a vaccination truck. I'll go run after that one. Thank you, Doug Ford. I'll just stand in my driveway with my arms uh, extended until the truck drives by. Just it's all bullshit, obviously. He just, he just made it up. Well, we're going to talk about Ford. We're going to talk about Ford later, and we're going to talk about the premiers later, and then Jenny will get... You know, liberals, liberals who obviously don't listen to this podcast... Claim that Jenny is a Ford apologist, which uh, she will get to demonstrate later on in the show. It's ne not been my observation, but uh, let's let's see. I, I actually want to like I agree with I, like I I get a lot of hate on Twitter, and I actually don't I I don't understand. Change like, your life, then Jenny. Come on, Sc Scott's been more of a Ford apologist in the last. I knew that was coming. I knew that was coming. 
I could smell that dog being put on the queue. I could smell it. I knew it. Uh, hmm. Well, I'm off the Ford Apologist campaign bandwagon. <laughs> let me tell you that bandwagon. <laughs> so um, it's like the it's first like, part it's of like this- a game of uh, di- uh, ding dong da- uh, ding dong ditch. You know, it's like doorbell goes and you're like, oh. Hey, it's Doug Ford and our vaccinations. And then you open the door and it's him like laughing and running down the street. You fucker, come back here with my vaccine. I just want to point out to you that when we're talking about Ford, and if you don't want to call him Doug anymore, Scott, if you're tired of calling him Doug, that I did establish in 2018, according to a review and an official report by the Canadian Broadcast Standards Council, that you can call Ford a dick and it's fine. I, I yeah I recall that. See, you and I are a little different. Yeah. I, I when I, when I when I get cross, I refer to him as Douglas. Uh, that's that's how you know I've, uh, <laughs> I'm losing my cool. <laughs> All right, so normally we talk about politics in this show, but Don Drummond uh, was our guest this morning. Uh, Don is one of the smartest people I worked with in government. Um, a great economist. Um, and was obviously a central part of the fight to balance the budget in the 1990s. He's outside the consensus of economists who say deficits don't matter anymore, money is plentiful and uh, free, and we should just be spending away. Uh, He's way outside that consensus. He thinks the amount of debt that we're already racking up is very, very large and could become very problematic. Uh, if interest rates rise, and he does not believe that inflation and interest rates will not eventually rise. Um, and the second argument he makes is intergenerational fairness, um, which is we decided to spend all this money on the CERB and the wage subsidy and all this stuff quite appropriately to cushion our society against the pandemic. There's no long-term benefit from that. That's not investment in infrastructure. That is current levels of consumption. And his question is, why are we going to pass a trillion dollars of debt that we spent on current consumption down to future generations who already have to deal with fucking climate change and the gig economy and everything else, and then we're going to pass this debt on to him? He thinks that the responsible thing for government to do is to raise revenue, um, both to deal with the existing deficits and to... Uh, take care of any additional consumption spending that they plan to do. He doesn't have a political point of view of spend or not spend, but I think his view is that if you're going to spend, have the courage to raise the revenue to pay for it. Well, absolutely no one is going to do that uh, leading into an election campaign. Like there's less than 0% chance. And I think we've seen uh, there's policies that are being bantered about where uh, uh, the liberals have said that they're not going, they're obviously not going to implement the, you know, the capital gains on, uh, on uh, revenue that uh, that you get from uh, from uh, real estate from from selling your house, um, if 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 the liberals uh, are going to do that, that's something my guess will be that they realize that they have to do for the economy after the next election. But um, I, you know, I think he 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 may be right. I'm not I, I I'm not saying that that he is. Uh, but z- no political party uh, or no no serious political party, liberals, conservatives, uh, definitely not conservatives are going to uh, campaign and say, you know what we got to do? Uh, you elect me and I'm going to raise your taxes. No, nobody's ever won on that platform for sure. But does it have to happen at some point? 
Well, you and I have worked with Don for a long time and have known him for a long time. So I am not going to pretend that I can uh, hold my own in a policy discussion with Don Drummond. But I, uh, I'm i going to say, nevertheless, there are some things I agree and some things I disagree. I, I, I think that I agree that inevitably there will be one of the consequences of, of what's happened in the past year or two is that there will be a discussion about uh, raising revenue by by lots of Western governments. And we're starting to see it already, right? We see we see Janet Yellen saying, can we raise taxes on corporations so we can avoid a race to the bottom? We don't make it a competitive thing. Let's try to move in a coordinated way among nations. Um, I mean, that's the first step, right? Is that the first place you're going to go if you want to raise revenue is you raise it on, um, on, on the corporations because that's less po- politically unpopular. And you can make a policy argument that that's a better... Um, that's a better balance anyway, and then that's uh, that's correcting uh, something we've we've let get out of whack over the last thirty years. I also think there will be other kinds of responses down the road from governments. Um, you know, we may find that other governments say, "Look, we've got to we've got to raise revenues to pay the bill," and that sounds unpopular. But maybe at some point that will become a test of political will. That if governments pass, they'll get rewarded for, in much the same way that for decades you couldn't get rewarded for. Um, tackling the deficit and fiscal austerity, but we know by the time we got there in 1995, it wasn't just something that you could do, it was something that you had to do and you got politically rewarded for doing it. So maybe that will happen even on taxes down the road, but it sure seems invisible to the eye now. The, The final thing is I think there will be changes, there will be demand for other kinds of policy responses and 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 I think and 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 it'll feel like Kobayashi Meru. Like like people will go, wait a minute, right? We built up all this debt. Um, now we can't afford it. We have to raise taxes. There we are, Kobayashi Maru. Look at that. God love him, Kirk, most beautiful bastard. Um, and I, I I wonder if governments will say, you know what we have to do? We have to convene a G20 and we have to talk about how um, how we establish the rules of the game. If we can forgive debtness, if we if we can forgive debt. In uh, in the developing world and among hippic countries, maybe we can develop uh, a strategy to forgive our own debt. Maybe they'll just say, "We'll just we'll just see if we can policy magician our way out of these obligations." I, I, I it sounds silly, but don't be surprised if they try to do it. Final thing I would say is I don't entirely agree with Don in terms of diagnosis. When he says, well, we did this in order to cushion the blow and that it was just in order to sustain consumer uh, and uh, behavior and consumption, I don't think that's fair. I don't think that's true. We did it to keep the economy from grinding to a halt and from households to falling to, sh- uh, to threads. And, um, and uh, ultimately, the savior of all of this will be growth. We hope it'll be growth coupled with low interest rates would allow us to chip away those debt levels. But it's going to be growth. And there would have been no growth if we had permitted things to literally There's not going to be ash. any <clears throat> There's not going to be any growth anyway. Growth has been less than 2% per annum for years and years and years, right? And we've got to find and a way to fix that. We keep thinking that we keep thinking well if we can get growth to 4 or 5% we can pay for all kinds of shit, but we can't get growth to 4 or 5%. We never have. Well, I don't know. I mean, we have not, but because we have not doesn't mean that we cannot. And we're going to have to sort of try to, we're going to have to figure that out. But I know this, if we had, if, if we had done nothing and permitted households to sustain on their own, differentiated as they are by income level and opportunity to sustain all that burden, uh, there would be no growth. There would be not be 2% growth next year. It would have collapsed people and broken us. And so it wasn't just to cushion us. It wasn't like we're like, oh, can I keep my record collection and my expensive coffees? No, we were doing it to stay 
above water. Okay, Boomer. Yeah, it, it really is putting it, it's putting today's problem uh, and just pushing it uh, and pushing it forward. I, I, Look, I, I get part of that, but I think that that's too simplistic an analysis. I don't think that's fair. The, the next generation wouldn't have been better off if we'd allowed the economy to crack like a vase this past year. <laughs> Ask Sam. Um, okay, so, you know, last weekend, and things move so past in politics now, in the media cycle, that people may have forgotten. But last weekend, there were two national party conventions. The Liberals and the NDP held their party conventions. Jenny, did you happen to observe any of the Liberal Convention, and what did you think? I did. I, I did. Uh, I, I, uh, um, I, I watched. Uh, I watched a, f- uh, a few hours of uh, a few hours of it on the uh, on the uh, Friday. I think it was in the uh, in the Saturday. Uh, it was. I'll start by saying it was so much better than the NDP convention because every time I got reports online of the NDP convention, it was someone standing up and going, "Point of order. This is a terrible convention. Let's just stop it now." Like, just, I love the end, end it. End it. This sucks. <laughs> Um, Thank God this convention's online so we don't have to worry about drinking or getting laid. Oh, finally. Um, uh, So the Liberal Convention, yeah, I watched watched, uh, Marcy Yen's uh, interview with uh, Mark Carney. Uh, I watched a little bit of the debate and I watched uh, Trudeau's Trudeau's, uh, keynote on uh, on Saturday. So I'll start with Trudeau's keynote. Um, I actually thought he thought it was a very good event for him. It was obviously like a a campaign type kickoff. It was almost kind of like a stump. Um, He looked good. His delivery is much better. He's, he's lost the drama teacher kind of like breathless talk that like he had for kind of the first bit, the, I'm a feminist prime minister and we're, we're in this together. He actually, his delivery was, 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 was normal. Um, and their visuals were fan, uh, their visuals were fantastic. The, you know, the liberal branding behind, they had, um, uh, they had the virtual, you know, people watching hundred people like off to the side. So I thought that was good. I also thought that uh, the interesting thing, and we've talked about this is uh, his contrasting on uh, the conservatives and Aaron O'Toole was, was very, um, uh, was very telling, I think, foreshadowing where they're going to go. So he talked about, uh, uh, you know, this is a guy who got elected uh, saying one thing and doing another, which is something that we have talked about in terms of issues that conservatives, uh, conservative members have had about Aaron. But I think that one thing that the liberals have uh, have acknowledged is I think that uh, they realize if that in their postmortem from the last election, they made a fundamentally bad mistake by not doing any contrast or negative advertising or messaging on uh, Andrew Shear. They probably could have um, they probably could have actually won a majority if they had uh, if they had they had actually gone on the attack. And I think what we're seeing with that speech is they're not going to make the same mistake with uh, they're not going to make the same the same mistake in the next election with Aaron. All right. Scott, what do you think of the convention? Well, you know, I think political conventions are like what my grandma Kerr used to say about children in the 1970s. They're better seen than heard. Um, And so I like a political convention, particularly in the age of Zoom, that looks pretty, gives me a nice, tight, clear message, has some boring coherence, and I don't have to think about it, and then goes away. And so I rank the Liberal convention pretty high on that. It plays to the Liberal Party strength. It plays to the Trudeau version of the Liberal Party in particular strengths. Um, and when you contrast it to, you know, obviously the the the, the debacle with, um, you know, with Aaron O'Toole saying on the one night, you know, we're not going to be lectured on climate change. The next night is 
party lecturing him on uh, climate change. I mean, that, you know, you don't want. The NDP convention was, you know, the headlines were technical glitch. Uh, and as Jenny says, they're all like arguing about points of order. And I can't, I was third in the queue. And now because of the Zoom chat room, I've been moved to 17th in the queue. And I would like to talk. All right. This is not, Woodsworth would have never st- stood for this. And you're like, oh God, you know. But um, so it's just, you know, it's just kind of. Uh, <laughs> gruesome, but you know, like I, 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 my general view on political conventions is that they, re, you know, they're intramural affairs, and 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 they matter for discipline and coherence, and to a degree, preparation. I think we may exaggerate how much you actually get, you know, in terms of preparation. I mean, it's it's when Jenny, from a campaign operation standpoint, starts cracking the whip and getting the team and the ridings and the provinces together that that really happens. But it's about coherence. And so the NDP convention wasn't terribly coherent because it was all about babbling about like points of order. The conservative convention wasn't coherent because they were contradicting themselves on climate change. And the liberal convention was pretty coherent because you had a prime minister who said, look, this is what we're going to do, and the conservatives are bad. And so, you know, I, I, I think the importance of these things um, are, are, are pretty marginal. Um, but, you know, I think if, if we're scorecarding them, the liberals had a much better one than the others. Oh, oh, do you agree with Jenny about Trudeau's speech? Yeah, I, you know what? Um, I do. And, and I, I thought it was notable because... Um, like, you know, the breathiness and the theatricalness of his presentation style. Um, it's not like there's been an arc for him as a prime minister and as a leader. It isn't like he started out eight years ago at this point and he's improved steadily to that point. Like, I found that he... He was very breathy, very theatrical initially, then it got better, and then it's plateaued. And I thought that in this speech... Um, it was noticeably different. I thought that he seemed a lot more, I mean, it was, it, it was as professional and as presented as you always get from him, but it was just a little less, it felt a little less packaged. It just felt, it felt crisp, not, um, not uh, just bullshit marketing. And that's, well, and that, that's good for the liberals and bad for the conservatives because he showed that he can talk about, he can drive home what he wants to be uh, seen as, and he can drive home what he wants to define the conservatives as, and he seemed to be very comfortable doing that. Yeah, I agree. And so, like, and I sh- I'm sure we'll get into it. Um, I think what he proved is he remains the number one asset for the Liberal Party of Canada. And so I commented on uh, Mark Carney's uh, uh, address and, and Q&A with on, uh, on the Friday night, which I'm sure we'll get into. And uh, that was know, a hot uh, take. That was a hot take. I'm sure you've reflected on that since. What do you mean? I, 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 I'm I stand joking. I'm by exactly what I, <laughs> but, but I think, but, 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 but I, what my point was like, you know, I had people like, Oh, the, the conservatives are so afraid of Mark Carney and all this kind of stuff. The, 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 uh, it would be the absolute opposite. What that convention showed is that Justin Trudeau is the number one asset for the liberal party. He remains to be so the, the, the party right now, it, the, the, the image of the party, the branding of the party, the messaging of the party, 
um, uh, it is secondary to him as a leader, as a prime minister. And, and conservatives are going to hate me saying it, but you have to actually just, it, it is a fact of the matter. Like I, I, as a conservative, would much rather there be a leader like Mark Kearney that we're running against because they don't have the cachet. Like Trudeau proved, like what I've seen, like what I saw during that convention is he, he remains to be a somewhat larger than life um, figure within Canadian politics, someone that, that, that has not been in my generation. Like I was, I was just a kid when Pierre Trudeau was, was prime minister. And so, um, I, I think for the liberals going into the election, whether it's going to be in, in, in a month or two months or six months, um, uh, it, what this, what this convention proved is that, oh, we've, we've, he, our number one asset going into this is, is Trudeau. Can I drill down on Carney for a second with you, Jenny? Because a lot of the pushback against um, against Mark's appearance was about his um, status as an elite person, his background and history and what he'd done, etc. And I'm just trying to understand, let's say, for the sake of argument, that when he was governor of the Bank of Canada, he... Um, had been in discussions. So, I mean, conservatives have suspected he was a liberal for a long time, dating back to 2012 or whenever the fuck it is. But what if instead his of vacation, that, he'd been signaling vacation, that he was conservative? The, vacation, the vacationing with Scott, Scott, with Scott Bryson. All right. So what if instead of that, he'd been signaling that he was a conservative, that he'd been vacationed with a conservative or that he had been in discussions with Stephen Harper about possibly coming into politics back then. And then he came out now and, and asked to speak to the conservative convention and said, I want to identify as a conservative. I mean, would the party, and I'm asking for a genuine answer, would, would the party be excited about him in that context or would the party still say, that's the kind of person I'm not interested in politics, that kind of elite big-headed uh, Davos thing. That's just not who we are. But that's a hypothetical. You can't, like, how, how can you answer that? Like, it's a hypothetical. It, that's not the case. Well, only, but, but it's not that, but he chose to not identify as a conservative for whatever reason. It's nothing inherently about his background or his Davos-ish credentials that meant that he couldn't have uh, ended up as a conservative. No, but he chose, he's a liberal. Like I, I, like I, like I, I don't know why we're having esoteric de right. decisions. He's, he's they former bank of, governor of Bank of Canada, governor of Bank of England. Well, I'm trying Goldman, to. It's Goldman's not an esoteric executive. decision. I'm trying to figure out. Well, but but that's. I'm but trying to figure out if you but, don't like him for those reasons, or if you don't like him because he's a liberal. I, I, I well, I, I'm giving analysis. So, so my analysis on this is that yeah. he is a guy, this is the problem yeah. he, a guy like Carney is going to have. So he's, he's dipped his toe politically every once in a while in politics. We talked about Brexit and, and his commentary as the governor of the Bank of, of England last week. Uh, he's a guy that talked about, uh, you know, I, I, I talked about on Twitter, talking about humanity in the markets. I understand what that is. I, but what does it practically mean? He's, he's a guy that's the vice president of a, of a company that owns uh, uh, major uh, non-renewable resource projects uh, around the world, including doing deals with the Chinese government, which kidnaps Canadian citizens and keeps them for no reason at all after like a three, uh, you know, a three hour trial. We've got the two Michaels. So for, for Carney to go and say, we're in this world now where there's humanity in the markets. 
I find it like a little, I find it a little bit rich because uh, it's not really putting your money where your mouth is. Okay, let's park Mark for now. Unless Scott, right. you've got something you want to say because he's going to yep. come. He's going to come on the show, and we and we we can uh, have a fuller discussion um, after uh, after he's been on the show. Um, well, I, I do want to say a couple things. Sorry, I, I want to say that I thought that his. Yeah. Uh, I thought that his. Um, I was glad to see that he didn't play it cute like we talked about on the podcast last week. I was glad that he said, look, I'm, you know, I'm going to do everything I can to help the Liberal Party get elected. I was glad that he didn't try to, you know, do that nudge and wink thing. So I thought that was welcome. I thought that the conservative responses we're talking about right now to him, um, I, I, I think it highlights a problem uh, for the conservatives, which is that, I mean, the, the reasons that were articulated that... The conservatives didn't like what they saw with Mark Carney is because of who he is. Oh, he's uh, a fathead, a devilish guy, all the stuff you said. Um, with a sprinkle of, yeah, we can't really buy any of this stuff he talks about, um, climate change and net zero, maybe because we don't really buy that stuff or maybe because we think he's been a hypocrite on it. But that level, that charge can be leveled by anybody who's ever stepped on an airplane and then talked about uh, net zero. So it's a pretty tough rule. Yeah, but Carney, Carney actually said that Brookfield was net zero and that's not true. I understand. My point is that if you're going to disqualify people from public life on that basis, then you're going to you're you're going to leave yourself as a party logically in a place where you're going to say we will therefore only permit people to run under our banner who you know want to storm the castle and kill the rich. And I think this tension that's emerging in the conservative party, it, you know, and we see it provincially, we see it federally, um, you know, between establishment, non-establishment. I think that it's, I, I, I think that it's got you guys running in intramural circles and, and it's creating a logic that's, you know, real problem. I mean, who was the party? Is the party Derek Sloan? Is the party Aaron O'Toole? Aaron O'Toole is an establishment guy who dresses up as a non-establishment guy on social media sometimes. And then he finds himself trapped between those things and looking like a horse's ass. So I think that, I, I think the reaction to Carney. And, and, and there are lots of things you can criticize about Carney. I thought the reaction to Carney highlighted a big problem for the conservatives. And no, I think it's a big. I think it's a big problem for Carney because this is this okay. is this is going to be the People want authenticity. There has to be some. So if Mark Carney wants to be uh, a multimillionaire um, elite, um, uh, then own it and wear it. But you can't go and lecture people ab about uh, what they should be doing and how they should be living their lives, uh, making millions of dollars uh, uh, talking about climate change and work for a company that invests in the Middle East and South American uh, non-renewable resource projects with the government of China. I just think that's the hypocrisy that 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 Carney has. And, and I think that because he hasn't been uh, he hasn't been in big P politics uh, like we have been. I, I, he's obviously a talented guy. He's obviously extremely smart. Um, but being in politics actually is, a, is also a learned skill. And so people coming into it may actually underestimate that. But he's coming into it um, saying one thing and, and doing another. And I think that that's the problem that he is going to have uh, when he decides uh, whether he is going to uh, whether he is going to run because what what you say publicly you're going to be judged on and he saw that with he saw that when he went out in February and said that Brookfield uh, was was uh, was a company that was already net zero and they came out and disputed that and said oh we're we're looking at being net zero kind of by 2050 so like just you know give us 30 years and uh, and we'll be where Mark says we are now.
But the que- the question is, it goes back to what David said. I mean, the, the question is, if someone that accomplished in the same way as Mark, and there aren't many of them, but if somebody as accomplished as him in the same way as Mark came forward and said, Jesus, I want to run for the conservatives, would the conservatives go through this big, long form of, you know, are you sufficiently anti-elite to get into our clubhouse or not? Or would they say, fuck, man, we're thrilled to have you, and you would defend all those things as opposed to turn them into... Uh, so what, points of criticism what, and attack. Scott and defend what? Defend what? Like, like, like lying about uh, lying about the companies he works for. Like, like well, that's your characterization. But it, well, but and, he did. But okay, but Scott, if okay, someone but, came out, if some, if I came out and said, like, if, if I came out and said Brookfield was net zero currently and they weren't, what is that? Like, like well, what he misspoke. You're, you're talking about. There's a billion people that are talking about what those things talking, are and what those are in terms talking, of definitions. But you guys are talking about how smart and accomplished he is. That's a pretty big. That's not like a misspeak. That's like an outright lie. So, but the so essence of the issue it, is: you Are you saying it. that if you're unless you're anti-elite, you can't get in our clubhouse as the Conservative Party is currently constructed? I don't think. I don't think anyone's saying that. You guys are trying to turn it. Sure, to sounds the like that. And turn it away from Mark Carney. So my question to you guys: Does he run? Like, does does he actually like put his money where his mouth is and and, and run? Because he will like once he steps over that line, uh, once you pass the Rubicon, now you are you are now a public figure. And what you say and what you do and and what you have done in the past is under scrutiny. I, I hope he runs, but he's got work to do, obviously. The reason I thought it was a legitimate question was, you know, when when um, when Ian Brody was on the show and we talked about the formation of the. Conservative Party of Canada, one of the differentiators that he wanted to make with the PC party that had preceded it was that the PC party privileged the Laurentian elites, to use the current um, the, the the current terminology, and treated the populist wing of the party um, as if it was the crazy uncle to be kept in the attic, and uh, that the part of the purpose of the Conservative Party was to banish those Laurentian elites and to empower the populist wing of the party. And so I'm wondering whether the party is genetically predisposed to reject people like Carney. Well, pe- pe- people uh, that, that, that kind of run in Mark Carney's circle seem to want to run for you guys. So like it's, it's like it's, it, it really is a... Uh, it, it like it, it's a conversation that we could run in like we could run around like we've we we normally talk about my party um uh it's, it's and you it, like so so talking about like kind of your party uh uh is is something we haven't done but but at the end of the day this is this goes back to the issues that Aaron is having it's the issues that Sheer had and and why people now can see what a uh uh you know one of the the things that that will go unheard, like will go unsaid about Stephen Harper, except for political people and nerds like us, is the fact that he had such a broad coalition of uh, of, uh, of conservatives. It's it was the populists and the reformers and the fiscal hawks and they're you know downtown Toronto supporters, downtown Montreal supporters. But the fact of the matter is, is, is that it's all an intellectual discussion. At the end of the day, the the Mark Carneys, the the Mike Lignatchevs, they're they're liberals. They want to run for your party. So the question goes back to, um, and taking it away from the intellectual discussion, does Mark Carney run? Does he, 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 he dip his, like he does more than dip his toe in, and where does he run? Uh, All big questions. I don't know. I hope he runs, and when he runs, he'll, he'll, uh, he'll get challenged on all those fronts for sure. Um, 
But, so does uh, he run in Ottawa or does he run in Toronto? Because the rumors I've heard is that me. the party wants him to run in Toronto. He wants to run in Ottawa. Ottawa, there's less options. There's, there's only one seat available for him to run in Ottawa. That would be fun to watch. Well, it I would, would be fucking good. like that. <laughs> I, I, yeah, I don't, I don't know. I don't know that that makes any sense. <laughs> no, but it would, because let's say even let's say even Mark Carney could uh, could win uh, in Carleton. Uh, it's it's not going to be a fun experience for him because uh, most conservatives I know, uh, even ones that really are not as uh, as keen on on you know they're 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 not as excited going into the election as they have past elections. Uh, my guess is that there would be a, a coalescing of uh, of support uh, if that was the case. So if I was the Liberals and I seriously wanted Mark Carney to run. Um, I'd be looking at probably a seat in Toronto that would be um, uh, that would be a lot easier. Make it St. Paul's. Like Carolyn Bennett can retire, and him and yeah. Christian can have like like ridings that like border each other. I, so if you, I don't know. I don't know. So I, I, I gather we're. I, I gather we're to infer, Jenny, that if he runs against uh, Polyev, that you intend to be active in the riding. Uh, well, I, I I don't know what you mean by active in the riding. Like I. You know, I donate to Pierre's campaigns. Um, I, you know. I, I, I mean that you would, you, you, you would take a sword be me, be me from, Captain from the, Carney from the every foothills day. of Mordor, <laughs> and you would travel to Carlton, and you would, you would, you, you would swing it with might uh, for thirty-six straight days. No, listen, Pierre has a good team. He, Pierre wouldn't if if that happened. I, I, I think that uh, uh, Pierre probably has it handled. He probably doesn't. Uh, uh, doesn't need my help. I'm happy to. Uh, I'm happy to knock on doors. But uh, um, uh, Pierre has a very good track record in terms of uh, taking on cabinet ministers and and winning political battles. It's probably uh, the, the the one of the biggest strengths he has is you guys continue to underestimate him uh, every step of the way. I don't underestimate the guy, but okay. I gotta tell you, NDP. Well, all right, forget it. But you know, no, go ahead, Scott. Go. Sorry well, to interrupt you. Know, you. But, you know. Um, one of the issues I I wonder about when it comes to Pierre Polyev is, you know, he's intensely motivating among conservatives. Um, but, you know, he's the Kenny Lindsman of Canadian politics, the Canadian conservative politics. He's the kind of guy that, you know, conservatives like, I love watching him run around the rink and prod people and drive other people crazy. But, you know... Kenny Lensman doesn't win the Hart Trophy. Kenny Lensman doesn't win the Rocket Richard Trophy. Kenny Lensman doesn't win the Cup. So, you know, you know, is... is yeah. I, I just wonder, like, sometimes he seems so bare-fang partisan and so sharp. And, you know, don't you at some point want to um, not just be the guy that, you know, like, why carry all of the party's partisan baggage and always be the tip on the uh, at the end of the party spear? At some point, if I were him, I'd be like, you know what? Like, I'd like to, I'd like to be known as something other than the hatchet. And, you know, I know you're not going to agree with that, but like when I saw his statement on Mark Carney, I kind of laughed because I was sort of like, it's just like, and here's something about him and here's another thing about him and here's one more fucking thing about him. And you're like, you know, obviously Pierre Polyev is smart and talented and is a tremendously able communicator, but we only see the guy swinging a bat. But that's partisan politics. Well, it's not everything, though, when it comes to, you know, Trying to get the top job ultimately. I mean, yeah, it isn't and, just and about people, calling your opponent an asshole. And Tr Tr Trudeau is Tr Trudeau is ruthlessly partisan. They just have much different styles. Uh, politicians that aren't partisan are the guys like Bill Morneau, uh, who end up uh, flaming out, uh, which 
Pierre was 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 helpful in uh, in helping him flame out. So we can talk about we can talk about. Well, Bob Dole style. never got to be president. You know, in 1976, he talked about democratic wars and it tarnished him. And so I guess you know I'm just wondering, like people have different styles, and obviously it's a partisan arena. And he's there's no questioning his capability in that in, in that respect. He's got a bag full of credentials on that. But you know, is there more to um, a successful career in public life? And if he wants to have the top job someday, won't he need to show different sides of himself to the Canadian public? I think he, I think he, I think he has. I don't. Okay. Well, right. we can agree to disagree. T- we've talked ourselves. We've talked ourselves right past the NDP convention. We no longer have time <laughs> to discuss the NDP convention. That's a shame. That's awful. <laughs> Because we have to talk about nothing, though, right? No. Because what we have to talk about this week is um, what appear to be pretty significant developments politically at the provincial level. So uh, there's uh, there's polling out this week that shows that the approval ratings of all of uh, of all of the premiers are diminishing. Uh, some of them quite dramatically. Nobody's in as much trouble as Kenny, and we'll get to Kenny in a second because it's more complex than just COVID, I'm pretty sure, with Kenny. Uh, but Ford has taken a big hit, and even Legault's taken a, a significant hit. Pallister and Moe are in the toilet. Um, so the halo effect around all governments that occurred through much of the first year of COVID appears to be leaving. And so my question is, how much trouble are these governments in? And will this trend move to the federal level as well, which we haven't seen it do yet? Well, I would just like to say, I feel I, I've been ahead of the curve on, the, on, on criticizing the premiers. I, 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 people are getting to where I was last March and April. Um, um, I, think, I, think for certain, I think for some premiers, it's, it's, it's very bad. And, and if you look at the Leger numbers that came out this week, um, the drop in approval ratings for like a premier like Doug, for example, he, he went down almost 20 points in two weeks. Um, uh, so that's significant. Like that's not a small, um, that's not a small drop. And so I think for, I think there's probably premiers are indifferent. Uh, it depends on where they are in the election cycle. Mo can kind of be um, in the toilet in Saskatchewan now, but he just, he just won a majority. Same with Horgan. Um, I think for Doug, yeah. it be, it's more troubling if you're sitting there, um, uh, getting ready for his election campaign, because he's, he's 14 months away, less than 14 months away, um, uh, to when the election is going to be. And so I think as, as kind of COVID as, as, you know, we've talked about this and not to get totally into the COVID side is as people are learning to live with this. And as other countries are kind of getting out of, um, uh, COVID, um, uh, the whole, we're all in this together, um, stuff, uh, ha- is, is wearing thin. And, and, uh, you know, one of the very smart moves by Trudeau is from the get-go, basically leaving all logistical decisions, like federal government's going to give money. Um, uh, and, and by the way, fuck up vaccines, but the provinces are going to fuck up the delivery of those vaccines so much that people forget about, uh, that we didn't procure enough of them. Um, but the, the province, uh, because, and they wanted to all front and center go out and announce lockdowns and restarts and school closures and schools back, they're now going to wear it. So I think it's, we saw this, this week, the first, uh, the first provincial election where an incumbent did not win reelection, uh, or actually do better. You had, uh, 
uh, Sandy Silver, the Liberal uh, uh, Premier in uh, in Yukon, uh, they're he, they're sitting. He's sitting tied. So at the very the best case scenario for him is is uh, is that he's going to have a minority government going from a majority. So if if I were if I were premiers like Pallister and and uh, uh, and Doug, I would be very very worried about what the numbers are right now. I, I'm not convinced it will bleed up. Scott, um, you got to take. Yeah, I'm not convinced it'll bleed up to the federal level, but I may be wrong. Um, I agree, I do, I agree, and I sorry, I agree with you, Scott. I agree with you. I, you know, I, uh, and and I'm not sure it will be um, as intense countrywide. I think it will vary jurisdiction to jurisdiction. I think premiers that, um, I, yeah, it, it goes back to what we were saying at the, at the beginning of this when I talked about the example that my family went through this past week. I think one of the big dangers is that as as um, as people ang- people's anxiety about the variant uh, rises, particularly I'm talking now, particularly in Ontario, um, you know, there's there's this tension that's very difficult for politicians to navigate, and so they do cosmetic measures when it comes to lockdown, and then are forced to do more serious measures on lockdown, and then knowing that vaccines is really the way to ultimately fix this they feel pressured to make promises that they can't deliver on um and so i think that one of the critical things you've got to do right now is be really really careful about promises that you can't deliver on i also think that um i think we can have nobody's going to be interested in this and politically it's it would have been impossible because nobody was going to uh, you know, say, all right, for the purposes of the pandemic, let's be a unitary state in the nation of Canada. But I think you can have an, a, a really interesting argument about whether it would have been better to have had a national strategy on rollout. I think it would be, I think it's really important uh, for the provinces when it comes to how much they did delegate to individual uh, health units. And I think it's a big source of problem for Doug Ford. I think you've got um, different, you know, there's, not consistent clarity on rollout from the province. Then you've got 34 local health units. You've got different situations on the ground in different parts of the province. Then they're facing uh, issues with, it isn't so much that you don't have the doses right now in Ontario. It's that they don't have doses in certain places. But boy, telling people in Ottawa that they're not going to get many doses because although cases exist, they're really running rampant in Toronto. And so I want to put them there. That ain't politically popular. So what do you do? And I think when Doug Ford tries to do the populist thing, which is to say to people what they want to hear, uh, it creates problems because as soon as he's done saying what people want to hear and then they realize that he that 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 means nothing, that that promise is attached to fuck nothing, uh, he ends up in a, a bigger political problem. And that's going to unfold for one more month like that. that we're not through it. You're going to have at least four to six more weeks of this and people are going to experience more variants more infections, more serious hospitalizations. They're going to experience stress in the health care system, which could get very critical. And your kids are going to be home all day long, which is going to cause enormous stress. All those things are going to make people really angry, really grumpy, and they're going to take their, take their anger out on Ford. So if he thinks a 20% drop is bad, wait to see where he is two weeks from now. Yeah, the school, this is the, this is the challenge for conservative governments. And I know, David, you want to get into, uh, to, to Alberta. This is the problem, like, it, with, with someone like Doug now, um, he, 
you know, conservative supporters generally, um, if they're, they were against uh, kind of the lockdown measures, the, the small business, and, and we've talked about this, like it, the, the vast majority of people, I think, probably fall in the same, in the same uh, uh, category. They, they wear a mask when they go out, they socially distance, they're pretty much following the rules, but they really would like, they, they don't want to make their life more miserable. If they're going to Walmart to buy like, you know, a bag of milk uh, or some eggs, if they can just buy a fucking soccer ball for their poor kid that's playing by themselves in the backyard because they can't go and see their friends. Like it's just, it's, it's making it more miserable. And so I think what we saw in Ontario, and I think it, it's a challenge that Jason's had uh, as well. And we can get into that is now Doug has pissed off all sides. And I think that the the final the final nail was this week in terms of uh, in terms of schooling. Like you have Leche send out a letter that lands in, in parents' uh, uh, inbox. Scott, I'm not sure if you got it, but like on one night and less than 12 hours later or 12 hours later, the government comes out and say, even though schools are completely safe, um, we're just going to shut them down. It's time to hunker down and and close schools. And I think that you have people that probably don't identify like you guys as liberals or me as a conservative that are just like what in the holy fuck is going on okay you know robin urbach in the globe mail is there an internal fight on this is there an internal fight is there an internal fight between ford and lecce i don't think so i think i think this is and this could go in the contract the contrast contrast because i mean lecce's lecce almost seemed like he was trying to force the decision by being so assertive that schools were going to stay open. I've I've heard of Felt no. Felt to me like he was trying to force. I've it. heard of no. I have heard of no. Um, I I've heard no of, of major fights within the Ontario. Like it's it's not like the like I've heard privately and I've uh, we've we've read the pub publicly about the fights that Jason has with his uh, the, the actual disconnect yeah. that he has with his cabinet. I don't. It's it's not really the same with. Uh, um, I, it's not really the same with Doug. I don't think Lecce was trying to force the issue. I think this is just a government that um, uh, that that changes their minds um, on stuff like this. It, it, you know, uh, it, it, to my mind, I don't think there's a fight between them. I wouldn't have insight into that, but I, that's not how I read it. I, I, I read it as incoherence. Um, and then they want to dress it up the day after as, well, you have to pivot and be nimble. Yes, you have to pivot and be nimble, but there's no, there, nimbleness does not adequately explain how literally one day you could say there's no way we're closing schools and the next day say you are like it's just like that policy could not have occurred in that intervening period of time so you know that to me is incoherence and this is the big advantage that trudeau has right now right his position in my view has been consistently we're going to do what it takes they run into all kinds of heavy water the procurement was all you know fucked up and it took a long time to get sufficient doses all that kind of stuff but there's at least a consistency and a coherence from Ford. It's a harder job at the province because you got, you know, rollout is logistics and all that. But from Ford, you get constant incoherence. 18 to 49 can get vaccinated, except when you show up, you can't. Um, we're going to keep schools open. Next day, we're going to keep schools closed. It's not the first time that's happened, by the way, as a parent. Like, this is about the fourth time they've done that bait and switch. And so I think it's it, what really drives people bananas from a messaging standpoint and a political standpoint is the incoherence. You don't know where they're going to land on any given day. And then I was going to mention Robert Nurback, just to give her a, a shout out in the Global Mail, I thought had a perfect line to summarize 
the um, the Ford government's approach on this stuff, right? Which is that today she said in the Globe, you know, the, the, their position their their position is to wait for the crisis to occur and then put in place preventative measures, and that's what they've done on the lockdowns over and over and over again, right? We'll put in place frustrating preventative measures after the crisis is upon us. When we're at ten point three percent, we'll say we're going to close schools. Well, thanks a fucking lot. Um, so. You know, I think I just I, I can't underscore enough. Like if I was advising one of these governments right now, regardless of political stripe at the provincial mm. level, I, I would want to get in a time machine, go back eight months and say coherence, coherence, coherence. Let's be consistent on 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 what it is that drives us. And and if there's a secret to Trudeau's polling success, I think it has been that people know where he stands on this thing. And there's been deadly consistency uh, well, and maybe Scott, and maybe Scott, they know where he stands on it, but maybe also he's limited the amount of accountability he can have for it. Yes, so I don't want to talk question. too much about I, I don't want to talk too much about Ford because outside of Atlanta, Canada, every province is on fire and furious with their premier and all this shit. What is interesting to me is that there's two different countries. If you talk to anybody in Ontario or Western Canada, you get on a Zoom call with them or a phone call with them, you talk about COVID for five minutes and how everybody's doing and what's going on, and you can sense the weight and the depression on people, uh, and sometimes the anger about what's going on in government. When I talk to people in Atlanta, Canada, they don't mention COVID unless I bring it up. And it's like something that they're reading about. They're living their lives. It's normal. Um, and it's a completely different experience in Atlanta, Canada. And that makes me think that maybe the federal government should have had a bigger role to play. I mean, they did things like border controls, a whole sets of things they did that they were able to do because of their region, maybe should have been in place nationally. Yeah, but anyone that called for border controls at the start of this was was accused of, like... Well, I know, but in retrospect, Jenny, and I know that that's wrong, but in retrospect, when we look back at how it went down, surely we have to learn a lot from the Atlanta-Canada experience and what a failure the rest of the country is compared to that. Well, but this is, but we've talked about this before. Like we are, we are, it, 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 we, we could not fully shut down our border. We need, we need the, we need the um, uh, uh, trade with, um, a trade with the U.S., but there could have been simple things that, that, that could have been done. Like we've talked about this. Uh, for uh, several times over the last year that the any essential workers like tr truck drivers or, or, or people that are like long haul truck drivers, um, there's no testing. And I'm not saying we've 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 talked about this before. I'm not saying that um, those guys that are going across the border four or five times a, a week uh, need should quarantine the whole time. But why isn't there some rapid testing program? So the vast majority of people that come into the country, um, we hear about quarantine hotels, we hear about you know, snowbirds, we hear about people coming in, the vast majority of people that actually come into Canada's border do not actually get tested. They don't fall under the quarantine rules. They don't get tested. So if we're wondering where, uh, uh, where the, the variants are, um, that's, that's obviously how they're coming. That's obviously how they're coming in because there are so many people that are exempt from having, actually having to follow the rules. They don't get tested when they land. They, they don't have to quarantine. And so the gov federal government could have actually very easily put programs in place uh, for that, but they did the expedient thing as well. They they announced a year into the that we were into the pandemic a quarantine hotel, and we're going to we're we're really going to stick it to those those fucking snowbirds uh, when they come back. It was completely a political response. If they actually truly cared about wanting to ensure that uh, uh, 
people coming across the border uh, were not infected with, uh, with, with COVID, uh, they would have had a program in place for essential workers who are crossing the border. So yes, they, to, to answer your question, David, they absolutely could have, but Atlantic Canada, like they, they, they're kind of like, you know, Canadians are very smug and we like to look down our nose at everyone. Atlantic Canadians right now are really looking down their nose at the rest of Canadian, at the rest of Canada, but they're going to have to suffer the economic consequences. Like all the, the airline routes, they were the first area, they were the first when Air Canada and WestJet stopped direct flights from like Ottawa to Fredericton and, and Toronto to Halifax and what have you, uh, Toronto to Sydney. Um, I, you know, they complained about that, but you can't close your borders and you can't tell people that they can't travel to your region and they have to quarantine for, for two weeks, even if they're coming from Toronto and not expect that there's going to be economic consequences to those decisions. All right. Um, we got it. We, we can't let this week go by. We're not going to be able to have a full enough conversation, but we can't let this week go by without talking about what's happening in Alberta because it's so fucking interesting. Okay. So since the last election, Jason Kenney appears to have lost half of the support he had in the last election. And it has um, not really gone to the NDP. Some of it's gone to people being undecided, and a big chunk of it's gone to the Wild Rose Independence Party. Um, so it's breaking off to the right. At the same time, the Alberta Liberal Party and all this stuff has disappeared, and the center-left appears consolidated behind Notley and the NDP. So Kenny has this public opinion problem where he's suddenly now losing the election to the NDP because his right flank has splintered and the left has consolidated. And at the same time, the far right flank of his, well, the far right, that's an unfair characterization, largely the, the right side of his caucus and the rural side of his caucus is uh, publicly breaking with him in an unprecedented thing. When's the last time any of us saw a quarter of a, of a caucus, federally or provincially, come out officially against their, lead, against their premier or prime minister? I've never seen it. So it's wild shit that's going on out there. And um, Jenny, do you have a sense of what's really at the root of it? Well, um, it seems if you, if you uh, based on media reports, um, I think it's, it's more than just uh, what would be seen as the conservative, uh, the conservative wing as of uh, the UCP. Of course, there was a, a merger like what we had. So you have Former, uh, 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 you have former members of the Wild Rose, former members of the PC Party. Um, uh, it seems that almost all wings of the party right now are, are um, upset with Jason. And so um, he, I, I think it's not just a, a problem with the electors. To your point, uh, when you have a quarter of your caucus come out and, and disagree, like publicly disagree with um, uh, where the, the direction of the government is, uh, you have to take notice of that. And I think one of the things that I have, uh, I had like in, in watching this uh, from afar, and I know quite a few people, um, obviously within the, uh, uh, within government and kind of watching how it's going is that I'm not sure that Jason has fully comprehended the situation that he's, he's in. He seems to have almost kind of, uh, kind of doubled down in terms of dealing with uh, dealing with his caucus. If you believe media reports that said he basically threatened his caucus and said, you guys will get in fucking line or I'm going to go to the LG, which is just a ridiculous statement, uh, which is a ridiculous statement uh, uh, to make. It, it almost like is Jason has the same issues with caucus that we've talked about Trudeau having where, you know, tr you know, caucus members joke that 
you know, in four years, Justin Trudeau's never had a conversation with them and, and doesn't know their name. It almost is seemingly like that is somewhat, it appears that Jason has the, uh, the same problem with, um, uh, with his caucus. And that's one that his, his, his people, his, the people around him and himself are going to have to really watch because when that happens, things can turn on a dime. Ask Patrick Brown. He woke up one day, uh, in January of 2018 thinking, uh, you know, uh, had a shower and like stretched and thought, I'm going to be premier in six months. And, and 12 hours later, he had been deposed by his, uh, by his, by his caucus. And so I think Jason really has to, uh, Jason really has to pay attention because um, uh, it seems it, the, the polls, David, as you said, I think he has, he has less than a 30% approval rating right now. Well, that's a sobering assessment. Scott, what's your take? Well, I don't have the benefit of, um, Jenny's genuine insight as to kind of where the dynamic is internally and where, um, um, where his head may be at. Um, but I kind of just retreat back to my point about coherence. I think one of the challenges that the pandemic has presented for uh, Jason, who had unique challenges as a, as someone in government, you know, before the pandemic, because of what we're seeing in terms of uh, the way the oil patches is, is being hit Um and just the economic challenges that underpinned all, all of that. But I, I think, you know, there's a real incoherence problem. And so, you know, he has a pick a, he's had a pick a lane problem for a number of months, I think, you know, because he'll, his reflex politically is to talk about choice and freedom and opening it up. And we're not going to let doctors tell us what to do and that kind of stuff. But then of course he has to, so he can say that at night um, as a politician, but the next morning he wakes up and he has to put on his government hat and he has to say, wow, the variant is what it is. And so we're having to do these rollback measures and people say, wait a second. I thought you were that guy. It turns out you're this guy. The people who want him to be this guy never really trusted him and they're dissatisfied with those measures. They don't think he's sincerely that person. The people who thought he was that guy, it was all freedom and choice and let's let it rip. They feel betrayed and you end up in this world where you're trapped between those things. And that's a bad place to be. That's a 25, 30% place to be. And he's got to get out of that place fast. And the problem is that the circumstances don't permit him to easily walk away from that place. He's got to get through uh, the pandemic. And so, you know, I, I, I guess one of the things I wonder about is, will he be forced? I mean, it makes no sense on the face of it. You don't want to be forced into an election. But what tools do you have available as the premier if you're, ha if you're facing this kind of internal dissent, this sort of brazen willingness to criticize you in public and call you out? What instruments are available to you other than the threat of election and the loss of their job uh, to try to put those people in place. And it's not obvious to me that those people are necessarily motivated by that fear. They may say, fuck it, we don't care. Let her, let her roll. Um, so it, it's, it, 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 it's a tough political spot, but one wonders if he's going to be forced to make that threat more times in the future, because I, I I don't know what else. Like he can't just take committee assignments away. I don't think that's going to get the job done in this case. Well, well, or he could actually try. He could actually try to build consensus within his within his caucus. I think that listen, if 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 he was to go to the polls right now, he would lose. And so Jason Kenney's legacy would be uh, that he, in in spite, it, it, like. Uh, in, in, in a, in, in, despite his caucus, he went into an election and, and at this point lost to the NDP. So I, I don't think he wants that legacy. If, if you're going to go to the polls or you're going to make that threat, Boris Johnson made that threat to his caucus over uh, Brexit. 
uh, he said, you know, you'll support me. The difference is, as conservative voters, people that voted for Johnson supported Johnson's Boris Johnson's position on Brexit. The, the problem is, is, is if Jason Kenney makes that threat to his caucus and say, I'm going to go to an election on this, the, the vast majority of conservative voters are going to be like, all right, well, fuck you guys. I'm going to vote for Wild Rose or I'm going to vote for the Maverick Party or I'm going to vote for someone else. Or what happens to conservatives more times than not when they lose is I'm not going to vote. Um, and so I think it's, 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 it's one of those things. Like if, if you're going to make a threat like that, you have to be willing to, uh, actually do it. And I'm not sure Jason, uh, I'm not sure Jason, uh, is willing to, to, I, I don't see evidence that he's actually willing to, uh, uh, to do it. Cause it would be political lunacy. Okay. Last note for now, Jenny, if you had to bet, do you think there'll be some wild rose independent party MLAs after the next election? Um, well, if uh, under the political circumstances that there are now, I would say yes. Yeah. And I, and I think it'll be very interesting. All right. Okay. Go, go. And I think it'll be no, very I interesting. Think, you got to I finish think, that sentence. No, no, no. I, th I think it'll be very interesting. This is, it's going to, uh, the West is going to be a real, uh, a real area to watch, um, uh, after the next federal election, because everyone usually is like, how does Ontario vote? How does, uh, how does Quebec vote? I think depending on what happens in the next federal election, whether it's now six months, a year, uh, it's going to be very interesting to see how, depending on what the results of that election are, how people in, in the West actually, um, uh, what their feelings are towards the government. I think it, we could we, we could be looking at a very interesting uh, interesting dynamic, more 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 like a little bit of late eighties, early nineties kind of dynamic. All right, I feel that too. In the prairies, I feel that too. All right, we're out of time. Time for our hey yous. Let's jam in some quick hey yous here. Who wants to start? Scott. Okay, my hey you is to Christa Freeland, our Deputy Prime Minister and Finance Minister. I think her budget this coming week is, as advertised, as important as the 1995 budget that Paul Martin introduced. I think it is as consequential as that. I think it is going to be a budget that will likely have a legacy that will last a generation, and therefore it is an important political event. And so my hey you is this. Minister Freeland, please be bold in your policy choices. And now is not the time for turning. Be bold. But also, please be measured when discussing your motivations. It wasn't fair this weekend when people snipped your uh, little sentence there and said that, you know, this was a window of political opportunity and tried to suggest that you were saying that COVID created an opportunity. But, but that is going to happen. And people are going to assign that. And they're going to be looking for signs that build back better is this great government by management consultant thesis that is driving the current liberal government. And you're going to have to be big and bold with your policy choices, but measured and precise with your language when it comes to talking about motivation and driving ambition behind these programs. Just cannot give any opening to the likes of the Jennies to say, aha, see, it's one big fucking social engineering experiment. They want to transform Canada with borrowed bucks and make it unrecognizable going forward. You can't permit that. You've got to be precise. So be precise. <laughs> the be likes precise. of Jenny. Um, so the likes of Jenny. Actually 
the likes of Jenny. Um, my my hey you is to uh, is to uh, the, the government, uh, in, in particularly uh, the prime minister. Is uh, I understand the um, uh, the nuances and uh, the dealing with the uh, with with the Chinese government in terms of uh, the two Michaels and other uh, and other Canadians that have seemingly been kidnapped. Um, but th there there comes a time where you actually have to comment on it. And I think this week we saw two things that uh, that continue to be troubling in this government. Uh, one caused by this government and one that should be dealt with this government. Uh, the government uh, threatens the Halifax Security Forum uh, with uh, with no government funding uh, or help uh, if they proceeded uh, to award the Prime Minister of Taiwan with the uh, John McCain Award. John McCain's family, Meghan McCain, came out and uh, and called the uh, called the government uh, weak uh, on that, which they are. Uh, we also saw today that a, a senator uh, she could have used Craven. Yu Pa Wu, uh, and I and I I probably have said his name wrong. He is an, he is a senator appointed by Justin Trudeau, who tweeted out in Mandarin um, this week uh, that basically saying that uh, if the Canadians Canadians have to just the Chinese need to recognize Canada's judicial system, and and the, and Canadians need to. Uh, to recognize uh, the Chinese judicial system, even though obviously uh, there were no actual trials, charges. Uh, there were, you know, a three-hour court case where no one could watch and yeah. for the Michaels. Uh, and they're basic, basically saying that if there's ever going to be peace between the two countries, uh, that ca Canadians have to uh, acknowledge that, uh, you know, the, the, the uh, legitimacy of the Chinese uh, judicial system. And so these are serious problems that uh, Trudeau has uh, within his uh, within his government. And I think that he he his government should spend more time trying to uh, trying to address them because uh, they are extremely troubling, more than troubling. It's 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 it, like it's just it's absolutely awful. And it's and by the way, the approach that the government has taken towards China over the last two years has done sweet fuck all. Yeah, that Halifax security uh, forum thing seems brutal. Brutal, and uh, and uh, another banner outing for Sajin, who is really ripping it up these days. Um, <laughs> my my hey, my my hey you is uh, to uh, Jagmeet Singh, who gave a speech to his convention and to the country last Sunday, in which he said that the current Trudeau government uh, does nothing for working people does not care about working people, is in the pockets of billionaires and multinational corporations, and every decision it makes benefits those interests and is against the interests of working people. And, and next week, you're going to vote confidence in that government. And anytime they bring something forward, you're going to vote confidence in that government. Well, which the fuck is it? Is it the worst government that could be imagined? And you said in your speech, there's no difference between the liberals and the conservatives. If that's the case, you shouldn't be afraid of an election. You should be wanting an election because this is a terrible government that should be driven out of office. And it doesn't matter if they happen to get replaced by conservatives because it's the same. Um, but instead, you're going to say that it's the worst government and you're going to continue to vote for it. And I'm losing, uh, it's all losing credibility for me. So tell me, honestly, is this a reasonable government that could be better, or is it a shit government that needs to be replaced? Tell me, Jagmeet Singh. That's my hey you. That was a great hey you. All right, folks, I want to go. <laughs> Before we go, I want to ask Scott Reed, Rolling Thunder Review. Yeah. What's your favorite Dylan? What's your favorite Dylan tour? 74 with the band that results in the Before the Flood album or the 75 Rolling Thunder Review? 
Rolling Thunder review, just because there's so much variety and stuff. Plus, I love the romantic idea that you go to a small venue and see that group of people. And I love, love, love the electric violin. So I will go with uh, Rolling Thunder. There's a live version of him singing Hazel during Rolling Thunder that exists somewhere on one of those bootleg albums that is just out of this world. You did it, blonde hair! It's just the greatest goddamn thing ever. <laughs> I have a hard time agreeing with you because I think Before the Flood might be the best live album of all time. It's pretty darn good. Pretty darn good. Yep. But much like, you know, you know, a real, I, Jenny, you're going to hate this. Real hardcore Dylan guys will tell you that with the big backup singers and the crescendo of instrumentation, some of what occurred live on stage during the gospel times, those live performances were something unseen anywhere anytime in musical history and i would love to go see some of that stuff i've been saved by the blood of the lamb you got to serve somebody you got to serve somebody that's the lesson you got to serve somebody (laughs) in england or france i'd like to party thank you so much this is a great conversation we went a little long today but i think we had a lot to talk about So thanks for indulging me. I want to thank all of our listeners and our increasing number of viewers on YouTube. I want to thank everybody that gives us a shout out on social media about the show. I want to thank the Air Quotes media team and Metal Donkers Good for putting this together. Thank Don Drummond for taking the time to be with us today. And thank our presenting sponsor, TELUS, and our sponsor, CN Rail. All of you, we'll see you next Tuesday. Take care.